Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. This week, we're going to find out what it's like to become a journalist who strives to cover the issues that really matter. A few quick notices first, though. Firstly, if you'd like to come to the Effective Altruism Global Conference in San Francisco from the 21st to 23rd of June this year, applications are now open at eaglobal.org. If you like this show, you're highly likely to enjoy the people you meet there and the conversations you'll hopefully have, and I think me and a lot of the 80,000 Hours team will be there as well. Secondly, most people find out about this show from personal recommendations. So if you're enjoying the show or know someone who would benefit from listening in, we would really appreciate it if you could send them a message so they find out that we exist. Alternatively, you can leave us a review on iTunes, which also helps people find out about the show. At the end of this episode, my colleagues Michelle and Kieran come on the show for a second time for a 20-minute chat about whether journalism is actually a good career and the risks of political polarization of effective altruism topics. So stick around for that if you're interested. And finally, I'll link to some of my favorite articles by the journalist in this episode for you to check out, including topics like what works to stop factory farming, how to improve science grant funding, and why impact investing is probably overrated. All right, here's Kelsey. Today, I'm speaking with Kelsey Piper. Kelsey is a staff writer for Vox's new vertical focused on effective altruist themes, including threats to humanity as a whole. She previously worked as the head of the writing team at Triple Byte and ran Stanford Effective Altruism during college. She's also blogged at The Unit of Caring, her own blog, for many years. So thanks for coming on the podcast, Kelsey. Thanks so much. I actually love this podcast, so it's a treat to get to be here. Um, yeah, so I've been I've been uh, really enjoying uh, your writing since uh, you, you joined Vox, I think, in last October, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I hope to get to talk about uh, careers in journalism in general and like how, how we can improve uh, the, in, the information environment out there on uh, like issues that we care about. And I suppose also some specific articles that you've written. But first, I guess, yeah, t- tell us, uh, what are you working on at the moment and uh, why do you think it's really important? Uh, yeah, so I report for Future Perfect. I write mostly about factory farming and animal issues, about existential risks, and about some intriguing ways ways to improve the world, for example, improve scientific research or improve how we do voting. Some of the stuff that you guys have covered on 80,000 Hours, actually, just big ideas that I think aren't necessarily getting as much air as they possibly should. Yeah, I guess it's pretty similar to what I do in a way. Yeah, so, so this, this new uh, section of Vox's uh, website, uh, Future Perfect, tell us a little bit about, about the history there and how people have been reacting to it so far. Yes. So uh, Future Perfect is funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. They did not give us very much editorial direction, which I think is really good. Um, You want journalism to not be following a set of instructions about what to cover or, you know, that can sort of constrain the ability to tell the most important stories. So they were very flexible. They just wanted to create room for more coverage that's not tied to the news cycle, that's focused on important issues. And a lot of the people at Vox in particular, you know, Dylan Matthews and Ezra Klein were both very sympathetic to effective altruism and both had a lot of overlap in their interests with effective altruism and had written before about those topics. So they wanted Future Perfect to be heavily inspired by effective altruism and to sort of draw on a lot of the work the effective altruism community has done on those important questions. Broadly, like what, what kinds of articles have you been writing about or what kind of topics have you been writing about so far and uh, how have readers responded? 
Yeah, so I cover factory farming. I cover AI and both big breakthroughs on the AI capabilities front and sort of the case for AI safety and the way researchers are thinking about safety today. I'm writing a piece right now about bio-risk and sort of gain-of-function research and some of the ways that the research we're doing right now in bio could be dangerous if we don't handle it appropriately. And then I've written about improving the grant process, improving the voting process, stuff like that. And yeah, what's the reception mean to, to, to the articles? Are they getting like, are many people reading them? And do people send you emails that are either like love mail or hate mail? Yeah, so Future Perfect has gotten an encouraging response. We've had a lot of people reading and engaging with the articles. We've had a lot of people subscribe to our newsletter, which is something we sort of look for as a sign that they're valuing Future Perfect content sort of in particular on seeking out our perspective. I don't get very much feedback in emails. This is actually something I think people should know they could do more. Journalists tend to really value feedback and responses, especially feedback and responses that make it clear you read the whole article and thought about its contents. You do get a lot of reactions that um, are maybe a little bit shallower responses to the headline. That's a little bit less valuable. But I think if you see high quality reporting, you know, and you want to let a reporter know that you valued it, that you shared it with your friends, that it taught you something, I think that we're not nearly as drowned in that kind of feedback as I think people might anticipate. And it tends to encourage more coverage of whatever it is you're looking for. Yeah, interesting. I follow um, Matt Iglesias, is one of one of Vox's journalists on on Twitter, and he like semi regularly. I guess he's like quite a public figure. Yes, so. I think he he gets some more fan, fi, hate mail and probably more fan mail. Yeah, he, <laughs> he, he semi regularly posts just like the most terrific emails that he receives. But I guess that, that that's pretty, that's pretty pretty not typical. And he seems to be able to. I guess it's, he's been at this for a lot of years, so he's, he's able to take it with a great sense of humor at this point. Yeah, I I think um, I have not had that experience, and I'm somewhat glad. Maybe, maybe I'll develop a thick skin for it over. Time. Time. Yeah. So, uh, I guess, how does Future Perfect view its its relationship with with effective altruism as a kind of intellectual community? Yeah. So, I think Future Perfect definitely hopes that we're creating content that effective altruists will find it worth their time to read. I think we're definitely hoping that a lot of our content will advance conversations in effective altruism or bring them to a wider audience. We're not an effective altruist outlet. Future Perfect wants to also cover you know other things that are part of our mission, but not necessarily good priorities for EA. But certainly, I, I think we want the EA community to be getting a lot of value from Future Perfect. And I joined Future Perfect for EA reasons. I thought it was one of the best ways I could improve the world. Yeah. How, how many of you are? It sounds like there might only be two or three. Uh, right now, me and Dylan are writing for Future Perfect. Uh, we're also in the process of hiring a community manager. And on Monday, our new writer, uh, Sigal Samuels, um, who just left the Atlantic, is starting. So then we'll have another team number yeah uh i guess like fox as a whole has what 50 staff 100 staff it's like reasonably big now right it is yeah. pretty big um that's a good question because there's also all the sister sites um yeah. I, I don't have a number for you <laughs> I, um, I guess yeah i was i'm curious to know uh, what what does the rest of the organization think of future perfect and, and your work so it's, it's they're kind of a little bit more like focusing on the on the issues of the day and politics and so on i wonder like whether they think this is kind of the the wonky like academic side of fox so far the reaction has been really positive and really encouraging we've had a lot of writers 
readers who are interested in when one of their stories might fit within Future Perfect, they're excited to have it published there because they like that we're doing that and are excited to contribute that. We've gotten a lot of advice, you know, the science and health team obviously contribute a lot of articles to Future Perfect when it's something in their purview comes up, the team that works on global warming. So I think we really couldn't do something like Future Perfect without the rest of Vox, just because you need a lot of science expertise to do good science reporting. You need a lot of climate change expertise to do good climate change reporting. And Dylan and I don't have that, but we have this great team we can draw on. Yeah. So so which articles that Future Perfect has put out so far are you kind of most proud of? And are there any where you feel it's actually moved the needle and, and, and made the world a better place? I suppose it's, it's early days. It's only been around for five months, or maybe even less than that. Three months, four months? Yeah. Um, we launched in October 15th. So I think... It's a little early to start seeing if we're influencing the world, but I'm really proud to see factory farming coverage be a little bit more mainstream. Um, it's just something that seems like it should be covered along with all of the other issues of the day, and I'm excited to see it sort of fit into that role. I was really happy when I published a piece about AI safety a while back. Um, I heard from some people that that gave them a clear explanation of what was going on with AI to point to. And that's something that seems potentially pretty valuable just to make sure people are on the same page about that. Yeah, you, you, I think you wrote um, an article about the state of evidence in animal advocacy. So like, yeah, do, do we have evidence for like leafleting in, in favor of vegetarianism or veganism working uh, like an online ads and things like that? Oh, yeah. Do, do, do you want to describe what you found there? Yeah. So um, I really just had conversations with a bunch of people who are doing this research in the animal field. That's one of the best things about being a journalist is that I can call up experts in a field and say, just tell me what's going on and have great conversations. That's a perk I didn't really anticipate that people would be so willing to talk with me. But what so I heard from several of them, I heard from the team at Faunalytics, I heard from the team at the ACE or Animal Charity Evaluators was, um, we're seeing these corporate campaigns be hugely successful. And we're not seeing very much of an evidence base for a lot of things that have traditionally been a focus of these animal groups, in particular leafleting, but also more generally any efforts to kind of convince the public to become vegetarian or vegan. And so it was like, I feel like there's lots of people who care about animals and care about factory farming who aren't aware of where the evidence is at and sort of haven't seen the case that corporate campaigns are where to focus. And so got to write about that. Yeah, I just uh, I brought up that article because I just thought it was the it was the best thing that I'd seen written on that topic. Like evaluating, yeah, what, what things do we have evidence is uh, is working and, and what things don't we? And like summarizing it all like very quickly. I felt like I was really learning a lot, and I, and I kind of slightly work in this area, so that's like it's, it's great that there can be an article in the mainstream media where I like feel like I'm getting seriously informed. <laughs> wow, thank you. Yeah, so uh, what is like, kind of the day to day life of a of a journalist like? I imagine it's kind of hectic that you, you, like the, the demands to to put out content are, are, are pretty serious. I've heard. Yeah, Vox has a very fast pace, um, which was definitely something I was a little apprehensive about going in. Like, can I write that much? But it's been very good for me because I think the push to think about something you want to tell people every day just keeps you moving. So on most days, I will try and send my editor about three story ideas, things that I've, I've thought of that I want to write about, things that I have a lead on, things that I saw in the news that I felt like we need a future perfect take on. My editor will get back to me with the one or two that he's most excited about and say, yeah, go ahead and write this story. So then I'll email people who I want to talk to. I'll try and get introductions. I'll research for the piece. I'll have those conversations and phone calls. I'll try and write the piece. I'll try and file it before I go home. Uh, and then often at the same time, my editor and I will be going back and forth with edits on yesterday's story to get it to a state where we're both proud of it and confident of it and ready to put it on the site. 
Okay, so on a, on a typical day, you kind of have like two things on the boil, one that you're like starting today and one that you're finishing from yesterday. And the goal is to kind of, is to hopefully publish something basically every workday? Uh, yes. Now, in practice, some pieces take longer to come together or they come partway together and then we realize there's not a good story here or the situation is confusing enough that our initial take on it didn't work. So a fair number of stories get scrapped and in practice, I think I end up publishing four things a week. But yeah, the goal is certainly to have a week where every day we put out a new story. Okay, so so uh, you arrive in the office on, on Monday morning. Uh, I guess the, the, the first thing you have to do is figure out what you're going to write about uh, that, that day. H- how do you go about that? So I do a couple different things. One is I keep an eye out on the EA forums, on the EA Discord, in the EA Facebook groups, just for things people seem to be confused about. Those often make for great stories or things that I'm a little confused about and would love to just spend four hours digging into until I have a clearer picture of what's going on. And then I also look at the news. We're Covering a fair bit of philanthropy is another thing that EA is not necessarily focused on that Future Perfect is pretty interested in is like coverage of the big philanthropists. What is Bill Gates doing? What is Jeff Bezos doing? So I'll check the news and sort of look for stories that seem like there's a lot of takes out there, but it would be valuable to have a sort of Future Perfect take out there. And then I'll look at research that just came out, especially research in development economics or in um, health interventions that give well supports or on other topics that are of interest. And a write-up of a study is always a great piece because it's pretty straightforward. The authors are usually happy to talk with you and make sure you understand their research. And then you just explain the study, explain how confident we should be in it, stuff like that. Okay, so I, so at the start of the day, you come up with, like, what was it five or ten kind of ideas for articles to write? I aim then, for three, yeah. Three, okay. And then um, then how, how do you choose among those? My editor will usually take a look, and um, my editor has better instincts than me for what will, what will our Vox audience like and which of these are going to turn into a solid story. And uh, so then, yeah, how, how do you go about writing it? Uh, I mean, most people, I think, would find it quite hard to write an article with, with it within a day or two. It's, most people find it very hard to put pen to page to begin with, but... <laughs> Yeah, um, I think Vox has a big focus on explaining things, on answering questions. So, you know, you want to put yourself in the mind of an audience and ask, like, what questions are they going to have here? Um, and often you have to start by like explaining to them, why do they care about this? Why are you telling them about this? And then, you know, they're going to wonder, why aren't people doing this obvious solution that I thought of. I heard something about this. Why doesn't that work? So I think often articles are sort of shaped around figuring out where the reader's at and then telling them, this is interesting. Here's some things you're wondering about it. Here's the answer. Um, and then sort of here's a takeaway, like our understanding of what's going on. And I like that style of writing because it's very audience focused and it seems very suited to a lot of the topics I'm interested in, where you both want to engage people and explain why they care and, you know, give them a somewhat complicated picture of what's going on with some takeaways that hopefully they can use to, you know, make better decisions and focus on stuff that's important. So I, I imagine if I had to write something every day that I would often, you know, get to the mid-afternoon and be like, ah, I don't know what I think about this issue. I like haven't, haven't really like figured out what the answer is yet. Or, or I might get there and be like, oh, wow, like my whole like take on this was just, uh, I misunderstood the, the whole issue. And now it's like 3 p.m. and I got to file something, I guess, within the next few hours. Um, and, but I don't know what to say at this point. I get a pretty good reaction when I say, sorry, this story is going to take another day because it turned into a different story. You know, sometimes that means we scrap the story. Sometimes it means I write one that has a different, more complicated take. But I, I think there's not 
much pressure aside from, you know, your desire to file the story and get to stop to write something that you're starting to feel like is more complicated than that because complicated is okay. And the journey you had in the process of figuring it out is probably a journey you want to take the readers through, yeah. you know, and is in some ways more interesting than whatever your original take was. Yeah. Okay. So like, so if you uh, decide that uh, actually things are quite different than what you originally thought, then you can just like explain the process by which you got there. And that's like an interesting story in its own right. Uh, you, you didn't have to kind of like stick with the original vision just to like get something out there. Yeah. I mean, sometimes that's a compelling story in its own right. And sometimes it's not and the story ends up getting scrapped, but both of those are like fine outcomes. You don't want to put something out there that, that you're sort of feeling even as you post it. Like, I don't know how much I stand behind that. That's just not gonna, yeah, not gonna be reporting you can really stand by in the long run. Uh, do you find that there, there are um, meaningful trade-offs between, I guess, doing what's in like the interest of Vox as kind of a business or like what is you know, good in terms of building your brand, I suppose, as a journalist and, and uh, what seems to be like most effective from, from an EA point of view? Yeah, so I think a lot of journalists run into the same conundrum here, which is that takes on the news of the day, political stuff, polarizing sort of takes tend to do very well. If you're looking at page views, those will like get overwhelmingly good page views. I think the article I wrote that did the best was the one that was titled Billionaires Don't Run for President. And I stand by the article. I feel like it's a pretty good explanation of why if you're a billionaire and you have some goals, you have better avenues to pursue those goals. And the evidence that self-funded candidates do well in the run for office is like pretty mixed. So I feel like it's a good article. But certainly that headline, Billionaires Don't Run for Office, the timing, the day of Howard Schultz announcement, that made that like a really exciting story that everybody wanted to share compared to, you know, something that's just an explanation of the literature on skills development programs in the developing world is, isn't going to get that kind of response. So I think in Future Perfect, but probably less in Future Perfect than in journalism in general, there's certainly a feeling of like, well, I want people to read the things I write. And if I write about, you know, politics, and if I have these provocative headlines, and if I go for these sort of more interesting takes, then everybody reads what I write. And if I try and like step back the rhetoric, and if I try and add nuance, and if I try and, you know, tell a more complicated story that, that no one really wants to hear, then no one will hear it, you know? And I think that's I see a lot of sort of takes on why journalism has gotten or seems to many people to have gotten more polarizing and more driven by anti-Trump, pro-Trump, back and forth. And I actually don't think it's journalists really wanting to convince the public to be pro-Trump or anti-Trump. I think it's that the articles that aren't about that don't get shared and don't get liked. And that both makes it hard as a journalist to sort of tell the stories that you think it's most important to tell. And it means that as an audience member, the stories you see your friends sharing will all be selected from that subset that's sort of more provocative. Future Perfect is somewhat insulated from this because we don't have page view goals, because while politics is sometimes within our purview, certainly what did Trump say today is not going to be within our purview. And because we sort of have this mission we can hide behind, it's like we're trying to tell the big picture. But I think lots of journalists who would love to be doing substantive reporting are sort of in a hard place if they also want people to read what they're writing. Yeah. So how, how do you how do you reconcile those goals? As, I suppose you're, you're somewhat insulated from this. You, you kind of have the, the, the good fortune, as I guess kind of, kind of I do doing the show, to just go into great detail about things that we actually think are important. But but like, what should someone who's in a, a like less fortunate position uh, do? Is, is there any way of uh, squaring the circle? I think in the long run, there is certainly still a market for nuance and complexity and good reporting. 
And I know a lot of people who do very good stuff in that vein. I think there are also a lot of people who've chosen the sort of trade-off of writing about the latest Trump tweet, but trying to do that in a way that paints a nuanced picture of a complicated subject, sort of using the stories of the day as the hook into that. And that seems to me like a valid endeavor, like tell people the stories that they're interested in reading about, and then try and tell those stories with depth and nuance and complexity and, and just getting them right. So, so it kind of seems on this story that uh, in terms of who's to blame for a lot of journalism being quite bad, it's kind of the audience because they're, they're, they're choosing to, to read and share articles that are like of, of lo- like not, of, not of great lasting value. And so to some extent, you know, we, we've seen the enemy and it's ourself. Is, is, that, is that fair to say? I think it's certainly fair to say that there is more good journalism out there than people realize. And the reason for that is that a lot of the stuff that gets people very angry is not you know, the best stuff out there and not even the best stuff that those writers are producing and writing. I think what's going on with journalism as an industry is very complicated. And I've, you know, not been involved in it for long enough to be very confident in it. But I think local news is dying in a way that's very bad for communities because it's often the main check on corruption and bad local politics and abuses of power on the local level and stuff like that. And it's dying in part because people actually prefer to read national news. So that one you can sort of say is it's following the consumers and the consumers have a bit of a collective action problem in the sense that they might care about like corruption being thwarted, but they don't care to read the local paper. I think digital media is been in the headlines in the last couple of weeks with a lot of major layoffs and job cuts that has a bunch of people saying, is digital media a good idea? I think that's just that digital media was pitched as a startup, like tech, like you become big, you become a monopoly, you have these huge margins, and people eventually realized it's not going to look like that. Um, it's not going to be a huge margin monopoly business. It's going to be a low barriers to entry competitive business. And that meant investor expectations and funding levels were sort of out of line with the business models that made any sense. I don't think it means digital media is over. I think it just means it's going to be a low margins industry that's going to stick around like that. And then there's the polarization scheme. And yeah, I think there's just a lot of things going on there. And it would be very complicated to sort of change any of them because a lot of them are just market forces acting quite strongly. Yeah. Uh, I guess we, yeah, we'll, we'll return to the to, to journalism as an industry uh, l- later on. So, so when I visit one of your articles on Vox, uh, I suppose like the amount of um, you know revenue that that Vox gets is probably like a fra- tiny fraction of a cent just from the. Uh, I mean, it actually may be zero. Maybe it's negative because I have an ad blocker on my browser. So I suppose there's just like no point making any content for me. People should just avoid writing articles for kind of me and people like me who tend to have ad blockers on because there's just there's, no, there's nothing to be gained. Is, is that right? I don't know very much about Vox's resume model, but. That doesn't seem far off to me. I do think that ads-driven companies like Vox are in a different situation than subscription-driven ones like the New York Times and the Washington Post have moved to because, yeah, you, you need lots of viewers. You need lots of viewers who are watching and hopefully clicking on ads, um, and a lot of people just aren't. Yeah. yeah I have been wondering, uh, so I think at the moment I don't subscribe to, to, to any newspapers. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, in, in the past, I've had subscriptions to you know, places that produce content. But, but lately, I haven't. I've been uh, feeling somewhat bad about that. Like, maybe I should, maybe I should just always have a, a subscription to whatever place I think is doing, doing the best work so I can kind of do my fair share to contribute to actually creating content that, that keeps, keeps politics sane or keeps, like, uh, keeps people able to like, learn really useful things. It's kind of contributing to a public good. I do think that paying for content you value is 
you know, obviously not on the individual scale, but on the large scale, the only way to expect the world in five years to have content you value happening, um, which is tough because, you know, a lot of EAs where their money goes is like already a really important question. And I don't necessarily think that they should be spending it. But I do think that as a society, if we don't pay for good reporting, then there's going to be, be there. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, some people have been concerned that uh, uh, Future Perfect, though it's not like uh, if specifically a, like an effective altruism thing, it's kind of effective altruism inspired and effective altruism associated, and it's probably the the, the kind of only EA inspired like a uh, you know, large section on a, on a on a newspaper or a magazine. And I suppose that this uh, this leads this, this could lead to effective altruism being associated with kind of uh, liberalism because it's it's in Vox and Vox is well known as having a general like kind of center left like uh, liberal attitude. So do you think it would be good if uh, like if, if more more Different places, particularly potentially across the political spectrum, had had uh, sections that had kind of a, an effective altruism flavor. So, like, uh, there wasn't this risk of EA being seen as, as as partisan. Hmm. I think I have complicated feelings there. So, one thing is that I think effective altruism is it's a couple different things. It's a movement. It's like a philosophy and an approach to answering questions. It's a bunch of specific resources for people who are interested in working on specific problems. Some of those problems are likely to end up being part of political coalitions of one sort or another. And some of them probably are much better off if they aren't sort of framed in those terms at all. I think it's really unclear to me whether effective altruism being associated with center left like um, politics is a problem to mitigate an inevitable consequence of the sort of issues that effective altruism is about. Like, I don't know if you could get the Wall Street Journal to write about factory farming, even if you offered them a grant to do that. I'm not sure whether there are people who want to work at the Wall Street Journal and want to write about factory farming. I worry a little bit about targeting perceptions of where EA is on the political spectrum instead of just doing what I think Future Perfect is trying to do, which is more just borrow some of the ideas of EA and write content that's valuable to EAs, but avoid that branding and therefore keep the EA movement hopefully like can be branded however it wants. Future Perfect is Vox's thing. That said, there are a bunch of specific issues that Future Perfect covers that I do think should just be covered everywhere. I think policy um, with respect to existential risk should just be an area that newspapers cover because it's important. I think international development and health is to some extent already, but should be more so just an issue that all newspapers should cover. I think it would certainly be a really good sign if newspapers across the political spectrum were covering factory farming as a problem. Yeah, there are lots of issues where I would be very excited to see other people picking up Future Perfect's manner. And then there are a lot of issues where I think it would really matter who they hired. Like, I feel like Future Perfect is something I'm so excited about, in large part because Dylan is the person who sort of drove it, and Dylan is somebody who cares a lot about effective altruism and cares a lot about the causes and priorities I care about. And because Future Perfect's team was so open to hiring people with a background in the effective altruism community to sort of lend that perspective. I think if you tried to have it, for example, an AI department, and you didn't specifically hire for background in the effective altruist community, then I'm not sure I expect that AI department to do anything good. So I would have some reservations about like 
trying to convince everybody to do a future perfect without like a clear picture of what are the internal institutional incentives there, who would be writing the stories and like, what would our goal be? Even though I think many of these stories should be covered by everybody because they're important. Yeah, it is interesting. So if you think, I guess, like <laughs> the the three uh, cause areas most associated with effective altruism, you've got kind of global health, uh, you know, animal welfare, and, and global catastrophic risks. It feels like global catastrophic risks kind of clearly just shouldn't, like is, isn't really that partisan at the moment, or at least in principle. Like, I don't think that there's like Republicans who are in favor of nuclear war. Uh, yeah, no, I think almost everybody expresses concerns about nuclear war. And in fact, I've talked to a fair number of conservatives who specifically supported Trump because they thought he was less likely to have a dangerous adversarial relationship with Clinton, and they thought that Clinton's approach was more likely to lead to nuclear war. And certainly it seems good to me for there to be more national conversation about which of these politicians' approach to geopolitics endangers the world more. Factory farming seems likely to continue to be somewhat associated with liberals, but I'm not sure that's necessary. I've seen a lot of comparisons to like gay rights, which were fringe, and then they were mainstream among Democrats. And then that was enough to sort of get widespread successes without them ever being mainstream among Republicans in the US. But that has a bunch of religious implications. Republicans in the US are religious. Factory farming doesn't seem intractable among Republicans in the same way to me. It seems like it might actually be on the left side of all of this just because it is associated with that and those are the people pushing for it. So I would certainly be excited about, like I said, I'd be thrilled if the Wall Street Journal had a factory farming beat. I would be thrilled if some of the more conservative outlets that are like the new media outlets or whatever had a factory farming beat. That would just straightforwardly be great news. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it feels like the, the uh, animal welfare thing is perhaps uh, rather than like a right left thing, it's more of an urban uh, rural, uh, like the, the urban rural divide probably is, looms larger. Although I think even there, it's like if, if you ask people in principle, are they against uh, causing like suffering to animals on farms? Uh, just the vast majority of people in like every group are, are, are against this. And I'm not quite sure why it is the, the case that it's like uh, that these issues are just so much more prominent um, among like liberal and kind of kind of left groups. I guess it's possible it's because they're like much more urban in general. So like uh, conflicts less with uh, with with people's uh, livelihoods and younger younger people seem more concerned about animal issues i will say like overseas uh, this is much less the case in the uk there isn't really a partisan or there isn't really a left-right split i think on, on animal welfare in fact like uh, the conservative party has pushed forward uh, um, animal welfare reforms i think just as much as parties on the left uh, have and I th- in australia i think it is a, a bit a bit more like it is here but but nonetheless i think it's like uh, there's no particular reason why it has to be partisan. And I think it's like totally foreseeable that it, that it might like be, be much less so in future. Huh. With that context, yeah, that does make me think, okay, trying to mitigate the extent to which animal welfare is seen as a partisan issue in the U.S. is pretty important for the animal welfare movement. And, you know, if Vox contributed to making it seem like a liberal issue, then that would be unfortunate because I think it's just a universal issue. And I, yeah, yeah want coverage to reflect that. Yeah, I wonder if it's possible to write uh, articles that kind of uh, have this bent of like, yeah, p- people on, or like treating uh, people who are conservative who might otherwise like not be treated in such a flattering light in boxes, uh, like finding conservatives who are like very worried about animal welfare and, uh, and, and presenting kind of their, their, their take on things. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I can definitely take a look at what's out there. 
Um, yeah, and in terms of, I guess, on, on, on global uh, health and development, it's, it's interesting. That's another case where in, I think, uh, the UK, there, there, there really isn't such a big divide between the left and right, I think, on, on questions of like international development and uh, yeah, poverty alleviation. But again, in Australia and, and the US, it does seem to be more of, a, of an issue that is like brought up uh, far, more, far more on the left and there's like some, some greater hostility among more conservative parties. So keep in mind, my, my coworker Dylan Matthews wrote this great article arguing that George Bush's work on AIDS in Africa was not just the biggest deal of his presidency, but was actually like he, he saved more lives there than he destroyed with the pointless wars in the Middle East, um, which, you know, I, I don't think we need to add those up and say, OK, he was good overall. <laughs> but it's still an important perspective to have, you know, that this huge deal, the, the most important thing about his presidency wasn't really getting a lot of coverage or a lot of interest. And I, I deeply respect what he did there. The current Republican Party seems a bit more nationalist, a bit more hostile to the idea of significant investment in um, people overseas to some extent. I, I, I know Trump has a lot of rhetoric about how we're, we're being cheated whenever we're giving things to other countries and getting nothing in return. So under this administration, it seems a little trickier to hit the bipartisan balance. But again, yeah, it doesn't feel inevitable to me. It seems like an issue that certainly everybody cares about and that is possible to have investment in from all sides. Yeah. So uh, let's back up a little bit. It's a very tricky question, but uh, how how much do you think yeah, effective altruism as a community should should strive to, to not be seen as partisan? And I guess you were saying you're not sure that uh, you know people should make active, specific efforts to to avoid being seen as, as as more liberal. Maybe you just think we should like make the arguments as they are, and and, and then the then the, the cards fall as they may in terms of like what what the partisan lean is. Yeah, I think. I think a lot of the discussion I see effective altruists engage in around whether they should be partisan seems focused on things that would be pretty costly to change. And I would be excited to instead see people, for example, make the pitch for a cause they care about in terms they expect to be compelling to audiences they think we're underserving. And if that results in, you know, lots more conservatives hearing about it, then that's great. I would be intrigued by efforts to sort of make effective altruism more compelling from other perspectives. I've written a little bit on my Tumblr, for example, about what the best approach to reducing deaths of fetuses might be from the perspective of pro-life people. And I would be pretty excited about, you know, there being effective altruists who are interested in that question the same way they're effective altruists interested in lots of other questions that might assume some values I don't share. And that seems like all good stuff that I would be excited about. I think a lot of the things I see people suggesting to get EA less political seem more like don't engage in politics or like don't have discussion of which candidates are going to have the most beneficial impact on the world. And then I'm less optimistic about that. That seems like it compromises our ability to do stuff by quite a lot. Yeah, it does seem like yeah, it's it's a hard sell to 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 gag people from saying things that they think are true and important. Uh, it seems like it's easier just to like add additional voices. Say I'm going to like write something about animal welfare in the Wall Street Journal or, or the National Review, uh, rather than to try to get other people to shut up. Yeah, I think that's a great great summary. I would love it if effective altruism included more conversations aimed for other audiences. I get nervous when it seems like it's should we restrict conversations for these audiences because yeah yeah i think it, it would be uh, i guess i would 
think it was quite foolish if someone was trying to portray a global catastrophic risk as a, as a left or liberal issue because because was just like it's like wrong uh but i guess i haven't I haven't seen that and i'm not sure what the angle there is oh, i suppose uh, maybe you'll criticize uh, like right-wing foreign policy or something say oh evidently these people don't care about civilizational stability but but i think that would be a misunderstanding yeah i i think certainly for any issue alienating lots of the country by asserting they don't care about it looks like a pretty bad move um <laughs> <laughs> especially something like the destruction of civilization, which I, I think it appears to be the case that almost <laughs> everybody wants to prevent that. So <laughs> yeah, uh, we could be, we can be at least that charitable. Um, th- this might be a hard question, but are, are there any like other media outlets or like what would be um, another media outlet that you'd be most excited about uh, starting uh, a- another kind of effective altruism in- inspired uh, vertical or, or section, I suppose, as, uh, as normal people call it. Again, I think that depends so much on, the internal like support for the division and who gets to work there. I think obviously the outlet and the platform matters, but almost more important to that I think is what sort of direction they're getting and who they are, how much background they have in covering these issues, who they know to talk to. I think even the best reporter in the world is going to have a hard time with accurate coverage of a beat they just don't have any exposure to in the past. And I think even the best reporter in the world is going to end up sort of sidelined into the things that their editors understand if their editors aren't coming at it from a perspective of really being willing to step outside their comfort zone and do something new. So I feel like lucky that Vox had Ezra and Dylan. I feel like that's pretty key to Future Perfect's being able to do what it's doing. And I'm sure there are more Ezra's and Dylan's out there, but I don't know where. So uh, an idea that's become popular in the effective actress community, I think, uh, over the years is that in order to have impact, yeah, it, we really want to present kind of our views in like a very sophisticated version and to get people to, to really understand them on a deep level. And that, that there's, there's been experience that w- when they get uh, simplified in order to get promoted, uh, very often so much of the subtlety is lost that people can't meaningfully act on it, that they, they just get this kind of garbled version of it. And I think uh, yeah, there's a, an essay that the Center for Effective Actress put out called uh, The Fidelity Model of Spreading Ideas, which kind of makes this case that uh, we really, really want to find mediums like long-form podcasting where people can really actually grapple with the ideas i guess yeah did, did you worry that it's possible that the, the, the articles of, of the length that future perfect puts out just might not be like quite in-depth enough for for people to like fully fully kind of grok uh you know effective altruism i think yeah there's very few complicated ideas where reading one 2000 word article about it is going to stick with you as a significant change in your understanding of the world. I think what it can do is maybe get you interested enough to read more. And over time, there can be lots of articles that maybe reading all of them can be a little bit more compelling. But yeah, it seems absolutely true to me that you can't expect your case for impact to be, you know, we wrote this article, tons of people read it, they changed their minds and got a more productive understanding of things. Yeah, but uh, I guess you think like as a package, if they, if they read like many of these many of these articles, then then maybe they'll become like more informed and more able to to achieve good in their life. I think that people can click through and interact with other content and find the in depth explanations and find the experts and hopefully the people who are gripped by the initial idea are willing to sort of take those follow up steps. Yeah, what what would happen if? Uh, like you or someone else went into to Future Perfect and said, oh, well, uh, I think it'd be good if we wrote um, half as many articles, but that they were twice as long. So they like went, went into went into like an unusual, in, uh, unusual depth on the topics. Would that be something that uh, Vox would be excited about? I think Vox believes pretty strongly that having content go up frequently is pretty essential to engagement and that telling lots of stories is an important part of telling 
the most compelling stories and the stories that change minds. I think it's not really structured. Longer would be fine, but longer at the expense of getting lots of ideas out there every week, I think sort of isn't what Vox has experienced as the best model for what they do and sort of what they know how to make succeed. Yeah, so I guess if you want the really unusual depth and you go and read the, the citations, read the papers that you're writing about potentially. Yeah, absolutely. And we do have some long form content. My, my AI article is like more than 5,000 words, which is as long as I wanted it to be. If, if I'd wanted 8,000 words, I could have done that for that piece, but that didn't seem like it would add understanding at that point. Uh, yeah, is there anything that uh, listeners could do to, uh, I guess, like help with the project or like potentially ameliorate any concerns that they have about Future Perfect and its strengths and weaknesses? Uh, I do think people should talk to me. Um, <laughs> there was a discussion on the EA forum recently where people were airing a lot of sort of confusion about what Vox was doing and what Future Perfect was doing and how Future Perfect saw itself as relating to the EA community and why there were articles on Future Perfect that were about causes that aren't EA priorities, which is because Future Perfect is also interested in sort of applying some of the same questions and approaches to other topics and why Future Perfect covers politics when EA has some good reasons to not be involved in politics, which is that Future Perfect is not doing that branding and is interested in applying some of the same tools and frameworks to political questions. And I, I did get the sense that like, if people wanted to reach out and say, hey, why is Future Perfect doing this? Then I could just be like, oh yeah, this is what's going on. And people should feel free to do that. Also, there was like, somebody was saying, we don't know, for example, whether the Rockefeller Foundation is paying per article. And I would be happy to answer that. Nope, it's a grant for the year. We don't know whether they have page view requirements. I'm happy to answer that. No, we, we don't have page view requirements. So, so yeah, I think people could be a little bit more willing to ask questions if they have concerns and hopefully at least have concerns that are sort of grounded in a clearer picture of what the incentives are. Yeah. Have you kind of got any advice for other people who are trying to communicate EA, EA ideas like uh, as, as amateurs rather than, than as professionals, things that you've learned from from uh, trying to like get people to like really understand um, effective altruism over the years? So I've touched on this a bit before, but I think people find effective altruism most compelling when it is answering a question that they have an answer to. And that's something we sometimes fail at as a community because for example, I think most effective altruists about like education in the US are kind of like the answer to education in the US is that it's not a good place to spend money on at this time. But I think when you can, demonstrating how the effective altruist approach gives useful answers on a question that people already care about is a good way to make them care about it as an approach and therefore care about the answers it gives to other questions. So without saying anything about where resources should go on the margin, I think it's often very compelling to say like, hey, you're interested in getting this one particular apartment building at the end of your block approved. You're interested in homeless shelters in your community or something. Like here's sort of how I would approach that question. I would look at where money can have the biggest impact. I would look at successful other projects. I would look at what resources seem to be the limiting resources in making this happen. I would do a cost effectiveness estimate. This is like the answers I get. This is the guide I would give. And I think when you do that, people are interested in your approach and are much more likely to care about what answers you get when you ask what's the best thing to do in the world compared to if it doesn't seem to have any applications to things that are already important to them. Do you get any pushback from people who are like, oh, this is so preachy, this is so demanding, this is so moralizing, uh, like th this is frustrating to me? I know that's 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 one thing that uh, kind of EA ideas, is one, one way that they can rub people the wrong way. Yeah, I think part of the problem there is that 
people need lots of different things. Like there are people who genuinely benefit from an ethical system that says, yes, this is demanding, doing the right thing in the world we live in is actually very hard and it's going to ask a lot of you, but it's important, it will have a lot of returns and there is support to help you succeed while you're doing this very demanding thing. And I think there are people to whom that's really compelling. And then there are people for whom that's really depressing and overwhelming and they bounce off it and they feel guilty and scared. And there are people for whom it's much better to say, you know, you don't have obligations and it's not reasonable to ask things of people, but you know, if you could do this little thing that, that would make things a lot better. And then there are people for whom that message doesn't resonate and feels dishonest in some ways. Um, I think you basically can't pitch effective altruism to everybody. And I think most people have a comparative advantage at pitching effective altruism to people who are going to find it compelling for reasons sort of like theirs. Like, that doesn't mean you should just write articles that would have convinced a past you, but it does mean that like, if you're religious, you're going to do better at explaining religion to effective altruists than if somebody who's not religious tries to do that. If you're coming at it as an environmentalist who really wants to work on climate change, but has maybe decided that's not the thing to do, then lean into that and like, talk with other people who care about climate change about effective altruism and about climate change and stuff like that. You know, if you're, hear from the animal community, then like think about what effective altruism can bring the animal community and try and bring that as many places as you can. Yeah, I think it's it's important to kind of bring people on the on, on the journey with you. Sometimes there's yes. it can be a temptation to like jump to like final conclusions that are like ten steps ahead of like what what someone uh, currently mm-hmm. knows about and just like bludgeon them them over the head with like uh, something that I've, like it, w- it would make no sense for them to like agree with or to, or to understand because you haven't actually justified it. And yep. there could be like many steps in the justification, and also I guess just to be like. To, to like not show the same level of curiosity about their interests that you expect them to to um, have about your your views. Yeah, I, I think those are definitely all errors I see. These days when I try and talk with people about effective altruism, I think I pretty much just say making the world better is really important to me. I've like gone a lot of weird places in trying to figure out the answer to the question, what are the most important problems today? And I think that if you also get in the habit of asking what are the most important problems, you will be able to do more. But that's not the right message for everybody. There isn't a right message for everybody. So uh, we we raised like some of the some of these concerns about like journalism as a business like as a business model. It, uh, the incentives aren't great. Like the money's not there necessarily to do the best work. Uh, do you have any ideas? I suppose you've only been <laughs> you've only been working at Vox for a couple of months. But do you have any ideas of like are, are there business models that we could get that would like uh, fund like a re- uh, yeah high quality journalism on a, on a larger scale and maybe also just get it out to more people in as much as those articles are being written but aren't getting like promoted sufficiently. Yeah, I do think. There is a lot of high quality journalism and I think finding authors who you observe consistently doing high quality journalism and recommending them to your friends. And I think it would be great if a lot more people had a list, like a lot of people have a list of blogs they read. I think similarly, it's often valuable to have a list of specific journalists you read that your friends can then click through and sort of see the perspectives that are informing yours. I'd be excited about people doing more of that. On a bigger scale, Uh, Grant-funded journalism is somewhat promising. Obviously, Future Perfect is funded by the Rockefeller Foundation, but also there's been efforts to fund journalism that does more investigations, some of the, like, looking for corruption and public good work. Um, ProPublica famously kind of follows that model. Yeah, exactly. I think um, that's a promising model if you think there's a lot of work that does a lot of public good and can't necessarily support itself with uh, 
subscriptions or ad sales. Yeah. So yes. Yeah, so, so one approach is to uh, write uh, sophisticated content and then find a way to brand it that like gets more attention. So you get more clicks and you can like cover the cost that way. And and I, I really I, I think there is a lot of promise in uh, using yeah, foundations, using uh, charitable donations to, to fund investigative journalism. Now that kind of the the cross subsidy within newspapers has, has kind of broken down, but it's just um, the total amount of charitable donations as a fraction of the economy just isn't so large. And you know obviously only like perhaps ever a few percent of like all charitable donations are going to go to journalism or that kind of po- political research. I, think, I imagine at the moment it's like a much smaller than that. So even if it grew, it's like it's never going to be as much money as newspapers used to get through subscriptions. I guess, yeah, is, uh, I suppose I, I have no answer to this. I, I, don't, I don't know what the, what the way out is. But yeah, are, are there any other options that I guess like people have, that you've heard people ever talk about? I think it's going to be difficult for a while. I don't think journalism is going to go entirely extinct or anything, but I think it's going to be a low margin, low barrier to entry People who are trying to do something better are in a difficult position with respect to people who figured out something cheaper industry for a while. And then, you know, maybe eventually we get UBI. I think there's lots of people who, if they could afford to pay their rent, would delightedly report just for the sake of getting stories out there. But yeah, we're in utopian territory by that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it's a shame you haven't been able to solve the entire issues of the journalism section. <laughs> I, give me six months of the job. <laughs> Yeah, so I think you made an interesting point earlier that even though there is like a lot of bad articles, like fairly low quality articles and you know hot takes of the day um, style writing out there, there is it is just true that there's like far more like amazing uh, journalism out there than like any of us possibly has the time to read. And so may- maybe I'm like thinking about this slightly wrong when I'm thinking how do we get more good journalism? It seems maybe what I want to do is like discourage people, like somehow stop them from reading the bad stuff, which are like the, the kind of candy floss journalism that that like everyone, including me, is like very drawn to reading on a, on a day to day basis just because it's so much easier. Yeah, is there anything that can be done to just like yeah, just dis- dis- discourage that? Subscribe to good newsletters, subscribe to good aggregators, maybe take like the aggregator apps off your phone that will tend to show you what most people are reading and it'll be whatever's the sort of most exciting story of the moment. I think I know a lot of people who've benefited from reading once a week about what happened that week instead of reading every day about what's happening that day. I think there are definitely ways as an individual to make sure you're reading bigger picture stuff that you care about instead of day-to-day stuff that you mostly don't care about. Yeah, so uh, one of the articles that you wrote, uh, which which I thought was uh, one of the best that you've done so far, was uh, the case for taking AI seriously as a as a threat to humanity. I uh, just want to explain uh, kind of what what you uh, what you did in that article and 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 how it came about. Yeah, so that one was one that was really satisfying to write and really felt like something I valued future perfect having and appreciated sort of being able to write. I I got several weeks for it and we did several weeks more revising it. The visuals team did the great artwork for it. And it basically explains why many people, including many researchers in the field, believe that AI is an existential risk and believe that mitigating work, like figuring out how to design AI's safety should start happening now. And My editor did a lot with this piece. He started by just writing like 10 questions he had about the AI risk thing. And so that meant it was very grounded in, you're a smart person who's heard that EAs care about AI risk, but that's all you've heard necessarily. And you have a bunch of obvious questions like, well, couldn't we turn the AI off? Like, can AIs really get that smart? What would it even do? And I feel like that made it a much easier piece for me to write because I was just, these are reasonable questions that reasonable people are going to have and trying to sort of give an answer. 
Interesting. So uh, I guess, yeah, th- this view that artificial intelligence or like a very advanced artificial intelligence could pose a, pose a big risk. I, regular listeners are going to have like heard several episodes about this kind of idea before and be, be familiar with it. And it's an idea that's become, I think, like very widespread and like pretty widely accepted uh, now. But it, it kind of used to be a bit more controversial, a bit bit more of a contrarian position. And I suppose uh, part of uh, the, the goal with this article would have been to like take people who are kind of skeptical, who have heard maybe an unconvincing version of it or, uh, you know, who, who for whatever reason just like have a, have a prior that this is unlikely to be the case and to kind of walk them through like the reasons why you think it, it is a real issue um like what, yeah, what stuff did you do to, to design the article in such a way that it would be uh, persuasive to people so i think one thing i tried to do is a objection i hear a lot is this sounds like a lot of people in silicon valley who decided that silicon valley is going to save or and or destroy the world and i don't think that's a very accurate picture of the ai risk landscape in particular both of course since early in computing, people working in computing were observing that this seems like something that will happen eventually, even if we couldn't predict when. Secondly, lots of the people working on AI risk are researchers in universities, not in Silicon Valley. If you look at polls, actually people in Silicon Valley are more likely to be AI is not a risk than the general public. So one thing I wanted to do was sort of emphasize all of the perspectives that lead you to AI risk is a problem and hopefully move the conversation beyond people in Silicon Valley think that they're going to kill us. And then I think another thing that I ended up coming to during the course of the piece was feeling like, especially since some people now think advanced AI might be developed with building on existing reinforcement learning and machine learning techniques, that meant that a lot of the conversations that I think are very widely happening now about bias, about algorithm transparency, instead of being a distraction from AI, felt like part of the same big picture. Like right now, we design a reinforcement learning algorithm and it doesn't do what we expect. And this has, you know, hilarious results if it's a game playing AI that hacks the game and gives itself a high score. Troubling results if it's a predicting whether people should be paroled AI that um, has racially disparate outcomes in violation of US law. But saying, all right, well, what if those systems were a lot more powerful and what if the scope of their operations was significantly bigger That looks pretty bad, right? And I think to lots of people for whom, you know, the argument for hard takeoff is complicated or or sketchy, just the simple, we're using these techniques. These techniques have some very visible failure modes. Scaling them up will mean scaling up the failure modes. That was something that I think um, Dylan found compelling and hadn't seen before. And that was something that I think a lot of people have an intuition for, which then maybe makes it easier for them to visit the question of, okay, what if AI didn't come from reinforcement learning? Okay, how quickly could we expect this to happen? You know, some of the the bigger questions that are important. Yeah, there is this funny catch-22 that uh, sometimes people will say, oh, I'm not concerned about AI because the only people who are worried about it are kind of people who are part of this like Silicon Valley elite who are working on the problem and and have these like delusions of grandeur about how they're going to affect the world in a really huge way. So that's their objection. Uh, But then you might say, oh, no, actually, like they're not especially more concerned about it than anyone else. It's actually like the general public who's who's, who's worried about it. And they say, well, now I don't believe it because now it's only amateurs, like uninformed people who aren't close to the technology who don't believe it. So it's like if it's it's the experts who believe it, it's not reliable because they're biased. And if it's the general public... it's not reliable. Uh, oh, I'm not going to trust them either because they're because they're not informed enough. Uh, it kind of it doesn't seem like both can be right. This is something when I was writing up the study that found that people in Silicon Valley are less concerned with AI than the general public. I was sort of thinking about how to balance because I think 
my impression of the actual state of the field is that lots of people have seen troubling things with present AI. Some of those I do think are related to the challenges that we're going to face in aligning advanced AI. Some of them aren't. Like people are also concerned about like whether self-driving cars will run down grandma. And I've actually written about this for Vox too. That's not the same sort of problem as AI safety. Um, it would be misleading to sort of take advantage of people's concern about that for AI safety conversations. But I do think that transparency and interpretation and machine learning conversations are very related to the ones about advanced AI safety. And then among experts, the perspectives I see tend to be either this is important, we should be working on it, or we are really far from AGI. We don't know enough about what it's going to look like for working on it to get us anywhere. And so I think that's very different than don't worry, nothing's wrong. And yeah, I want people to have a, an accurate picture of the field there, but that involves kind of getting into the weeds about why do some people think that this isn't that far away? Why do some people think that it's centuries out. How would we be able to tell what the world will look like 10 or 20 years before AGI? Yeah, so I guess um, one thing that people worry about when they're promoting concern for yeah, risk from artificial intelligence and potentially just all kinds of other um, risk from new technologies uh, is that uh, it, it could encourage kind of competition to create AI more 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 quickly. It can kind of can, can create an arms race if people will start to think that this technology is going to be more important than they thought before. I suppose to be honest, like Vox is a, is a drop in the drop in the ocean of like this overall discussion of whether AI is going to you know give particular organizations or countries comparative advantages over others. But I suppose uh, sometimes you you might worry that uh, you know raising alarm about things could, could be counterproductive for like that that or other related reasons. Yeah, I think there's definitely that's something that you have in mind when you're writing a story. I think I try to write about AI in a way that makes it as unsexy as possible, honestly. If we don't know how to cause reinforcement learning systems to reliably do expected behavior and have some checks on unexpected behavior that are perfectly reliable, then when they are more powerful in the space they're operating in is big, terrible things will happen and not terrible things that benefit the creators, just things that were outside the space we were looking for and can be catastrophic. I think people run into this problem a bit more if your perspective is, this is the most powerful thing ever going to happen. This is the thing that's going to end death and colonize the galaxy. And that's part of why I don't cover it that way. Although I also in part don't cover it that way because that's not a really a story I'm comfortable with writing. Like I, I don't feel very confident in speculating about what advanced systems will let us do necessarily. So I tend to focus on the case that if we're not careful, they won't benefit anybody, including the creators. Yeah. Uh, when you're writing an article like that, do you have like a, did you spend a lot of time thinking about who exactly is the target audience? And do you have kind of particular people in mind who, who you try to write for? So for that one, my editor, again, was super helpful with a big list of questions that he wanted answered. Um, I think in general, yeah, I'm writing for the advice we got in training at Vox was assume that your audience is smart, but knows nothing about the topic. Like don't underestimate their intelligence, but don't overestimate their background. Um, and that's generally feels pretty good to me because you need to start from the basics, but you can start from the basics with the assumption that you have a smart, informed audience that's following along and thinking of good questions as you go. And that can make for a good piece. Your, your colleague, uh, Dylan, um, tweeted, I think that, I, I think effectively you or this article or maybe this whole general discussion, mm -hmm. he'd uh, been, I guess, somewhat skeptical that, yeah, AI did, did really pose a threat. And to, to, to his credit, though, he'd, uh, I think, accurately represented at least part of the case in favor of worrying about it in his articles before, but he overall hadn't been, hadn't been convinced. But it sounds like uh, you, you, you changed his mind. 
did, did you guys just talk about it a whole, a whole lot in the office? And then uh, like eventually, like once you presented like the, the ideas in like full sophistication, he realized, oh, actually, like, yeah, maybe maybe this does make sense. I think the piece was part of it. I think he'd already sort of been thinking from the perspective that lots of things deserve some resources. And it's a question of what, what are the most important priorities for the world right now? And so if you're from the perspective that, yep, AI could happen and deserve some resources, then all that really needs to happen is a clearer picture of what the worry is and why resources are useful now. And so I think there's probably never as much distance as some of the public skepticism might've implied. And I think, yeah, having a clear articulation of the argument that didn't rely too much on some of the more esoteric assumptions. I think hard takeoff scenarios are quite likely, but I think that the case for AI safety work doesn't rest on them. So it's good to have some cases out there that don't necessarily assume that or make it a central feature of the argument or sort of treat it as if you're not convinced by hard takeoff, you have nothing to worry about here. Yeah, I think I've become like less convinced about the hard takeoff uh, scenarios, but I think that more just changes like how you'd go about things rather than like whether, you, whether you're... Um, worried or think that there's a lot of potential leverage by, by working on that issue yeah exactly yeah i guess like a, a dylan might have only changed his mind in like kind of subtle ways but i guess publicly it seemed like he uh had like changed his mind quite a bit and i think it's, it's it can be really hard to say oh well i think like actually i've changed my mind on this issue where previously i was a skeptic and i now kind of kind of buy into it so i think it's like super credible that, that he was willing to do that and i guess it's, it's a good sign that he's like a very intellectually honest and, and curious and open-minded uh, colleague yeah i really like working with dylan he, he's gonna watch this and then it's going to be awkward but he's a great person <laughs> super encouraging and helpful and very much someone who's doing this because he cares about the stuff we're reporting on and making the world a better place, which I feel like is a key ingredient for something like Future Perfect. You have to be there because you think figuring out what to do is both hard and important. Yeah. So uh, to, to what extent do you think kind of educating the public about global catastrophic risks as, as you're doing like uh, really helps to reduce them? I know there's some people who think, well, yeah, we could like make more voters in general worried about uh, you know threats from artificial intelligence or all kinds of other technologies but then how does that really cash out into into lowering those risks the the kind of causal pathway isn't, isn't super clear so i think there's a couple things one is if you're a smart young person and studying or a smart established person in your career and you see the argument for ai risk and you think that's what i should be doing i want to do that are the people around you going oh yeah i heard about that that's important i'm glad you're working on it the way i think they would react if you said I'm going to work on making organ donations safer or the way I'm going to work on reducing crime or like improving outcomes in policy. Or are, are people going to be like that weird Silicon Valley um, apocalypse cult thing? That matters. I think to a lot of people that matters. Um, and so I think, you know, all of this is very hard to quantify, but I think if the general Vox reading smart, wanting the world better, maybe not super informed about AI in particular, but broadly sympathetic to efforts to handle technology safely. If they've heard the case for AI risk and they have this general sense, yes, that's something some people should be working on, then I think that's good. I don't know how much gains there are beyond that point. Do we get much from coverage of the differences between slow takeoff and fast takeoff scenarios? Do we get very much from differences in approach um, between, for example, the team at OpenAI and the team at Miri? I don't know. I'm, I'm looking for hooks for those articles, honestly. I'd be excited if it seems like there's a way of telling those stories that people find compelling. But most of the impact I see is that if people are thinking about working on AI, it seems good for the people around them to be aware, yeah, that's something important that we need some people working on. Yeah, I guess, uh, look, 
writing more complicated or more technical content might attract like more informed and like smarter readers. That that might be one benefit there. I think it's definitely worth our while to publish articles that people who are in the field um, are excited about and feel like teach them things. And AI is somewhere where I might be equipped to do that because at this point I feel like I have a pretty good understanding of some of the technical concerns that the safety teams at various top organizations are working on. But I think Vox does want most of its content, um, if not all of its content, to be something that a smart person with no background in the area can sort of get into and follow along. So I think, you know, we're always going to be walking that balance where we want articles to be informative even to people in the field and certainly reading as consistently accurate to people in the field. But we still want every one of our readers to sort of be able to follow along. Yeah, how do you balance uh, the incentives to kind of create something that will get a lot of uh, hits right away because it's, say, topical versus trying to create an evergreen piece that has, you know, good search engine optimization and relevant keywords and, and might continue getting visitors for, for years? I think Vox likes evergreen content. There's a lot of focus on creating things that'll last. Also, often you can use a news hook and then have most of the story be something that's longer term. Like it's not just about the news, it's about the context the news fits into and it's therefore a piece that has a lot of reread value and that's definitely the sort of um, best outcome. But in general, I think I'll try of the three pitches I sent to my editor to have like one be a topical news thing, um, one or two, and then one or two be a just generic big question that I would like Vox to have an answer covering. So uh, another article that uh, you wrote recently uh, with, with Dylan Matthews uh, that I really liked was uh, another one like showing kind of um, the willingness to be uh, open-minded and like more concrete and try to just improve uh, how people think about issues in, in, in journalism uh, was 16 big predictions about 2019 from Trump's impeachment to the rise of AI. Yeah, do, do you want to explain what went on in, the, in that article and how it came about? Yeah, so I think a lot of people have expressed that it would be really valuable for more punditry and more policy in general to involve specific numerical predictions about outcomes. And that's just because it's the best form of accountability. It's very easy to say, you know, 2019 Trump will be a disappointment, or in 2019 Trump will get some big victories. Like predictions like that are almost definitely going to come true. So being specific, giving numerical values, lets people sort of tell whether you're actually someone worth listening to, whether when you say something is very likely, you're right. I think Nate Silver won a lot of credibility by doing this in the specific area of election forecasting. He said how likely each outcome, state by state, and then Senate races and House races was, and he's very well calibrated. When he says something is 60% likely to happen, it tends to happen 60% of the time. And that just means that when it comes to election forecasts, you can expect that Nate Silver is accurately representing his uncertainty and what's going on. And I think that gives him a credibility that most topics that are less concrete than that don't have and that most pundits in any field don't have. And it would be really cool for it to be more widespread, the practice of putting numbers on things and then revisiting where were you right, where were you wrong. So that's what we're trying to do. I think it's probably going to be very challenging because it was our first year of doing it. I expect that we got some stuff quite wrong because this is forecasting is hard forecasting is really hard and um it practice seems to make a big difference in improving at it so i don't necessarily expect these predictions to make us come out looking particularly good but i think it's still really important to do this if you want to set that standard for 
journalists in general. And if you want people to take your predictions about the future seriously, you need to start saying, here's how seriously you should take me. Here's how good I am at this. Yeah, we have uh, an episode with Philip Tetlock where we go into this whole forecasting issue and, and the question of like why journal, yeah, why pundits don't like make concrete forecasts and in, in, in more detail. It seems like uh, yeah, the key reason is that people don't want to be called out on, on being concretely wrong. And you were saying something like uh, Donald Trump would be a disappointment is kind of, well, obviously that would be true. But but is it even necessary? Because like a t- disappointment relative to what? The, the, the kind of claim is so vague that you would never even know if it was true at the end of the year. So. Yeah, I, I think that's very fair. It's a claim where the person who made it will definitely at the end of the year be able to make the case that they were right, which is different than <laughs> different than it actually being true. Yeah. So do you want, do you want to go uh, through some of the predictions that you made and kind of how, how, uh, how you arrived at your your confidence level? Yeah, absolutely. So we looked at some politics um, topics, you know, who is going to be the Democratic nominee, whether Trump is even going to stay in office, whether the US would enter a recession. I made that one. I said an 80% chance that we wouldn't enter a recession, which was just looking at the odds in any given year of entering a recession and then adjusting up a little bit because it's been a while since the last recession. There's some instability and scary stuff happening. And then right after I made this prediction, the government shutdown dragged on longer than a government shutdown ever has, which did a lot of damage to the economy and was looking like it might single-handedly cause a recession if it kept up for a while. And I was like, oh no, oh no, I predicted there wouldn't be a recession. It can't be a recession now. <laughs> it was amazing how motivated I felt by the fact I'd made this prediction in public instead of, you know, by all of the immense human suffering that would be caused. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got, we've got to keep our priorities straight. Uh, yeah. Millions will suffer, but at least I will have been right. <laughs> <laughs> but my 80% is looking pretty good right now that the January jobs numbers looked great, so. Yeah, I think yeah, I think eighty uh, percent still looks still looks pretty right. Uh, what was another one you did here? Uh, I guess an eighty percent likelihood that uh, U.S. homicides will decline this year relative to last. Yeah, so that was one where my own prediction ended up surprising me. I- tactic that Tetlock recommends is reference class forecasting, which is if you don't have a good answer to a question, you just figure out what the general category of the question is and what the answer would be. So for will homicide rates decline, I ask, what if I'd asked this question in 2000? What if I'd asked it in 2001? What if I'd asked it in 2002? And it turns out that if you predicted homicides would decline, you would only be wrong four years out of the last 20 years. Every other year, homicides declined. And there are some reasons to think maybe that trend is flattening out. There are some reasons to think that since 2018 was a rise, maybe we should expect regression to the mean. There's lots of reasons to not be sure that that's the right approach. But I tend to believe that people step away from the reference class a little too readily. Like if homicide rates declined all but four years of the last 20, including some years when you might think, oh, it's a recession that's going to drive crime up. Oh, there's other stuff going on that's going to drive crime up. Then I think you should trust the um, outside view a little bit more. So I ended up standing behind 80%. Yeah. Interestingly, crime and the economy are incredibly unrelated. And also interestingly, the Federal Reserve thinks that the amount of time since the last recession is isn't that related to whether to the likelihood of having another one in a, in a given year? Uh, at least, like that's what they said a few years ago. Maybe they've changed their mind, but yeah. But but I think in, in, yeah, absolutely. Like st- starting with the with the reference class and like hewing pretty closely to that is definitely the right the right approach in most of these cases. Yeah, and um, we'll see whether that approach is borne out because I also used it in predicting whether global carbon emissions would rise and in predicting a couple of other things. Uh, more whether more animals would be killed for human consumption. 
And then one prediction of mine that I wasn't very sure of, I think has already happened. Um, <laughs> DeepMind, every couple of years, DeepMind is Google's sister company. They're both part of Alphabet that does AI stuff. And they released AlphaGo and AlphaZero, which was amazingly good at two-player perfect information games. Um, last year, they released AlphaFold, which is a big deal in protein folding, but didn't reflect any particular advances in machine learning per se. And then just now, they released a Starcraft playing game, which reflects a big improvement over all previous efforts to win imperfect information, complex real-time strategy games, which is are very hard. OpenAI also works on this. So I was pretty excited to see that from them. And even if nothing else happens, I'm going to consider that something within the benchmark I was trying to outline. I had a very hard time describing that production precisely enough because it's hard to characterize what of their many regular releases is like a big advance on an interesting problem that we hadn't seen progress on before. And then do you count if it's a big advance but doesn't seem to use very novel techniques? How important is that? I think Alpha Star, the StarCraft playing game, is a less of a big step forward than, say, Alpha Go or Alpha Zero were. But it's still enough to make me say, yep, that's the sort of impressive progress on new domains and new problems that you'd expect to see if AI capabilities are continuing to increase. Yeah, so, so you guessed 50% on that. So I guess, I guess you break even on that either way. So yeah. <laughs> didn't have a strong horse in the race. Yeah, I, I wanted to go for a more uncertain number, but sometimes you think something has a 50% chance of happening. And it's still worth making the prediction because if your 50% predictions are right half the time, then that's a good thing to know. And like Scott Alexander does these predictions and he said that his 50% predictions were only right 30% of the time, which is also a good thing to know about yourself, that when it feels 50-50, you probably have a favorite, even if you don't know it. Um, I guess uh, and, uh, another one was, yeah, fully autonomous self-driving cars will not be commercially available as taxis or for sale and 90% likely. Yeah, I am, I am pretty pessimistic. On. This was one where I didn't do reference class forecasting. I've just been following self-driving cars and I'm like, Google is generally agreed to be the leader here. They have the most miles driven. They have the most resources. They don't have any embarrassing accidents that like have already happened. And they still seem to be having a really bad time in Arizona where there's no weather and no complications of coming up with a viable Uber-like service that uses autonomous vehicles. And that's not for reasons that seem like they'll change this year. Like it's not a shortage of engineer hours, although you can probably eventually patch some of the problems by pouring enough engineer hours at them. It just kind of seems like our current techniques that are seeing all these gains aren't that helpful for self-driving cars. And so it continues to be a really hard problem. Yeah, so I guess, uh, are you worried that in a year's time, uh, people, people criticize you a whole lot? I, I worry about all these predictions. Whenever things happen, I'm like, oh no, what, what if my predictions are wrong? But, you know, I think when I am taking a step back from it, I want people to know how accurate I am as a pundit because I want them to have a better understanding of the world. And that includes an understanding of how accurate I am. So if the results come back in a year that I'm not very accurate, then people should know that. And they should like read my articles with that in mind because that's part of them having an accurate understanding of the world. And of course I want to be accurate, but not checking is very much not the way to handle that. And I do think we'll get better with time. Yeah. There can be a temptation to, to give people a hard time when their forecasts are wrong or, or, or they make bets about issues and then they're wrong. But I think like in a world where most people aren't doing that, like making a bad forecast and losing a bet is actually like way better than not having done it in the first place. So I think I say like even the losers are winners <laughs> to me in this in this situation. And I do think in general, the response has been very supportive with people saying they're excited to see this and that they commend it. So that's 
definitely helps with keeping it happening. Yeah. Do, do you think it's possible to create a, a kind of a competition between different uh, different news outlets that don't necessarily like one another very much over who can make their make make more accurate forecasts? You could have like Vox versus the national the National Review, a journalist like each making predictions about what will happen that year, and then at the end like gloating about <laughs> winning. It would take a fair bit of time to set up, but I think it would be great to do some sort of cross outlet thing like this. And I know some other people are interested in it. So maybe if this does well for Vox this year, we'll have a little bit more leverage to convince everybody else to, to jump on. It seems like that could drive a lot of clicks, even if uh, you're the losing side or even if yeah, your journalists are more wrong. Like the, the competition itself would be very amusing to people. Yeah, I, I would be excited about that story. Maybe this is a, maybe this is a difficult question, but uh, but perhaps we've, we've spoken a lot about things that things that are good about Vox. So what what are the things that perhaps you like you like least about about it as a publication? Man, I guess I, I have to answer that so it doesn't just sound to, to, to our <laughs> listeners like I came here to talk about how great everything is. <laughs> I really wish that it was possible to have more people looking at pieces and more people doing fact checking. I think when I do it myself, there are some things that I'm going to be good at catching, but there are some things that I'm just coming at it from the wrong perspective. And I think I would write better articles if I had that. I think often, I think politics is absolutely part of what Future Perfect is about because it's a part of how to do good in the world. And there are reasons for EA to not be about that, but they mostly don't apply to Future Perfect. But sometimes we write politics articles that make my friends who are like, moderately familiar with US politics be like, man, I feel like I'm being sold a side of a story. And I definitely want to avoid that. I want people to feel like they're they're not being sold a side, they're being sold like a complete picture. Um, I think the age of Trump has been very bad for media in that uh, he continually does things that are very annoying and upsetting and not that important, but important enough that it merits coverage. And that means that if you're a journalist, you spend almost all of your time saturated in like, the president said this blatantly false thing. The president did this like unprecedented and rude thing. Um, and that just creates this environment of like exhaustion with the whole situation, which doesn't seem conducive to necessarily like helping people figure out what the most important stories are. I think the state of media in general is bad for journalists. I think if, if you don't really see how you have a viable career in your field, because it's not clear your field is going to continue to exist, that's, you know, upsetting for anybody. And, you know, maybe we're better at empathizing when it's people we agree with. But, you know, on all sides of the aisle, it's hard to do a good job of a job that doesn't have a clear business model and it is subject to bad incentives all around and is like pretty frustrating. And then Twitter seems very bad for that in that it exposes you to mostly a lot of angry jerks and I think makes people too easily react against angry jerks. One other place where I wouldn't say this is necessarily a bad thing about Vox, but it's certainly a place where I notice my views diverging from my colleagues a fair bit, is there's a big conversation right now about billionaires and philanthropy. And I think several Future Perfect articles have touched on this and other media articles have covered this as well, just sort of asking what is the place of people who are in a position to throw $20 billion at a problem compared to, you know, the situation where we have higher taxes and we tax people and we use that money as a society, we vote about how to use it to solve problems. And I think most of the people in Future Perfect lean towards the perspective that that would be much better um, if we tax the money and spent it on problems. 
And this is largely a question of which problems you care about and whether you can imagine Congress ever spending meaningful amounts of money on them. You know, if you care about US poverty or US healthcare, or maybe even to some extent international aid, then maybe the government having more money that could be democratically spent on those priorities is good. If you think some of the most important problems out there are like factory farming, something where the government's just never really going to do much, or if you think that the government is actively working against your interests, like I know a lot of sex workers who just wouldn't be happy about the government having more resources with which to pursue the policies it thinks are correct because it thinks those policies are you know, terrible. Or if you're worried about the far future and you don't think that US government work on AI risk is necessarily that helpful since it could you know, contribute to an arms race in a way that private research doesn't, then I think you have a lot more reservations about the let's just do this through taxes thing, because a lot of the things you think are important won't happen through taxes. If they don't happen through private charity, they won't happen at all. And I think I care a lot about various issues that will never happen through taxes. And that makes me more protective of billionaires maybe than, than the typical member of my team. Not billionaires in particular. I do think if you're a billionaire, you have a moral obligation to give away almost all of your money. Um, but. <laughs> But I also think that the world where the billionaires are spending it on the, their priorities is a world where my priorities have a lot more resources than if it's all taxes and it's Congress deciding where the money goes because they're just never going to care about many things that I think are important. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I've read a lot of articles about that and been like thinking about it and I have made some commentary about it on Twitter. I uh, I don't know where I, where I land. Like ultimately, like yeah, should is is would it be great to like transfer the, the money away from the billionaires and spend it through the government? It I haven't read any article that I feel nails that topic that like deals with it the way that I would. Like looking at what exactly what what do billionaires actually spend the money on? And what would the government actually spend the money on if it, if it raised taxes? Like what is the actual switch here? It's like people seem to have like very strong views without I think like having a very strong empirical grounding on knowing exactly what the ultimate change would be. And and because that's so hard to know, I think there's a temptation to, to make the decision based on other for, for other reasons, like based on like what seems like just or what seems fair, that kind of thing, uh, which I suppose like does matter, but I think like matters less to me than, than it perhaps does to other people. I'm certainly not willing to like lose Gates's work on malaria, which has saved millions of lives for, for a fairer distribution that doesn't save millions of lives. Yeah, I, I would also be interested in that article. Maybe I can write it. It's very hard to write. You know, the question of what does the government do with marginal money is just such a hard question. I keep like stabbing at understanding what the government does with money on the margin and then backing away because it's deeply unclear. So um, that makes it hard to write an article about because at some point your article is just like, unfortunately, we don't actually know much about the marginal effect of the government having more money. We don't even know the sign. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think it would be interesting for someone to at least lay out what is the equation that like should determine it, even if they don't know what the numbers are in there. I suppose that would be a step forward, even if it like would lead people to agnosticism. But I suppose agnosticism doesn't make great for great clickbait. Well, I, I could try writing it. I I could see sort of what the story there is. There is this uh, funny paradox that I think like uh, the people who currently think that the US government is uh, terribly run and like, yeah has bad priorities and uh, like isn't taking on the most important issues often seem to be in favor of raising taxes more, uh, which like, I, I think I think you can make this coherent, but there's, but there's definitely a strange tension there. I have also noticed that tension and it also seems a little strange to me. Like if we raise the money from the billionaires and spend it on the border wall, does anybody um, who supports raising the money from the billionaires feel enthusiastic about that? But I think... Like fundamentally, the forces that seem to be going on here are that inequality is 
fairly high compared to m most of what people remember and most of what their parents remember of their lives, that creates a lot of frustration. And right now, a lot of that frustration is being channeled at higher minimum wages and higher taxes, like address the inequality. And if the ways we address the inequality also make the world a better place, then, then that would be a bonus, you know? But I think on a lot of levels, this is a response to frustration about inequality rather than like, Working backwards from like, here's what I think the government would spend it on, therefore we should raise taxes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to, to, to that consideration. Uh, I think, and I think it should be given some weight, but it's like, it's a, yeah, it's a very, very, very complex, uh, complex policy question, I suppose. It's like, it's understandable that it's very hard to like, yeah, for, for anyone to really get to grips with it. Because I, I mean, I, I've thought about it much. I've, I've, got, I've got no idea really where I land. I also feel like for me, I'm very much biased by most of the billionaires I've known as friends of friends or like spent any time paying attention to have been the ones who are adjacent to the effective altruist movement or generally speaking, deeply interested in UBI for making the world better for, for most people here in general and then spending their own fortunes to do as much as they can on the sort of problems that they're more equipped to tackle. And so if, if you look in my mind at the prototypical billionaire, um, you know, it, it's like Dustin or Carrie, who I think are some of the most incredible people alive, or it's Bill Gates, who's saved millions of lives, like that's superhero territory. And I think for a lot of people, that's not the prototypical billionaire at all. But but, but I think that's a bias I have is I'm, I'm thinking of people who are doing a ton of good with their money. And I'm not sure I'm willing to give that up, or at least giving that up is very salient to me as a trade-off in a way I think it isn't to everybody. All right, yeah, returning to the, to the personal level, yeah, what, are the, what are the main stresses of the job? What, what, what are downsides that, uh, that people should be aware of? Hmm. So I used to hate phone calls. I've mostly gotten over that, but... I was terrified of phone calls when I first got an actual job and had to call people. I was like, yes, I was like sweating, but then it went away after a few days. But <laughs> I, I think it would have been good for me to have a class in college or something that made me make 10 phone calls a day. Just get it over with. And learn that actually you can do that. I think I frequently find it hard to, when I'm reading a bunch of research and I have an overall impression of what's going on, but I, I'm not that confident in it, figure out like, okay, what, what are the next hour of work on this that will like make me more confident that I'm getting the right impression here or point it out to me if I've got the wrong impression here. That's just always very scary because you don't have a ton of time and you definitely want to make sure that you have the right impression of a field and talking to people is very helpful, but often a lot of them have sort of their take on the field. And especially with all the recent understanding that we're all coming to of how unreliable research can be and how often published studies just aren't that good, you know, it can be very tricky to try and do a lit review and say, all right, this is my takeaway. How do I accurately represent to people how sure I am of, of this? I think that's something I find hard. I find it uh, quite quite depressing when people criticize uh, 80,000 hours as uh, work, work online, I guess especially when it feels like they've misunderstood or they're kind of misrepresenting it. Uh, have, you, have you had any experiences with that with uh, yeah, people criticizing articles? You know, this isn't fair. This That's not what I was saying. Uh, when I wrote about the particle reactor, yeah, I basically said this costs a lot. We might have a complete standard model here. We might not find anything aside from measuring some parameters more accurately. The case that CERN is making for it is saying a lot about there are so many undiscovered mysteries, which is true, but 
it's not clear that we're going to solve those undiscovered mysteries with a bigger particle collider, which doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. It just means the cost-benefit conversation needs to like be a little clearer about what the benefits are. Um, there was an angry response in Slate a couple days later that said Vox argued we shouldn't build an, a bigger particle collider because particle colliders never discover anything. And I was kind of like, hey, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, um, I think... That, that's just kind of how it goes, you know? Yeah, that's the way of the world. So it's, it's, it's hard to grasp subtlety or it takes, it takes a lot of effort potentially and, it's like, and it makes it harder to write the response article if you're like, well, actually, they had a very nuanced position, but then yeah. it's harder to be angry about it. So exactly. What do you say? Yeah, so uh, what have been kind of uh, any particular highlights? Are there things that are, that are especially enjoyable? I guess you're saying uh, being, having access to, to these experts who are willing to talk to you all the time is pretty great. Yeah, it's amazing to call people up and just ask about their research or ask about what they're doing. Um, I feel like I've learned a ton about lots of fields just by having the luxury of spending a day talking to five experts and then doing a lot of reading and trying to put together, you know, an accurate if limited picture of something I didn't know much about before. So that's amazing. I think one thing that's really great about having a platform is that when I see people sharing an inaccurate view or an oversimplified view, I can respond to that and try and get the idea I think is accurate out there. This happened a bunch with people accusing bed nets of being used for fishing. This is something I run into a lot when I mention that several of GiveWell's top charities handle malaria and that AMF distributes bed nets as people will say, oh, those are used for fishing. And nothing about the cost benefit analysis for AMF is like affected in any way by the fact that some people use bed nets for fishing. They check how many of their bed nets are used for sleeping under and preventing malaria. They go off the reduction in malaria mortality in the area where the nets are distributed. It's just, it's not relevant. And so it was nice to be able to sort of write up an explanation of that. And now when I encounter that, I can sort of have somewhere to point people. Yeah, uh, that's an incredibly successful meme. I don't know why yeah. the idea of the bed nets is, uh, yeah, uh, for fishing. Maybe because it's like counterintuitive. I, I think it's also people love to find reasons, I think, why charities are not effective. I, and I think in part it's because it gets them off the hook for donating to it. Maybe also just people like a, a story about how like think the world's not as you expect. There's also this like counterintuitive contrarian thing. I think it's both of those. It's satisfying to go, oh, charity doesn't work as well as you think, Bill Gates. And it's sort of satisfying to learn something more complicated. And I, I share both of those intuitions, but you got to actually be right. You can't right. just be contrarian. <laughs> yeah, very true. Do you ever have like, uh, people just refuse to talk to you because they're like, oh, I don't trust you or I don't trust Vox or I don't trust journalists. So I just like, I don't want to talk to the media and, and then, then you can't get information out of them. Yeah, that happens. And then I go ahead with what I can. Sometimes that means this can't be a story because we don't know enough. Sometimes it just means that the story is like slightly less informed by their perspective. I would like people to know more about the tools they have available to make a conversation with a journalist less scary and more productive. You can say, I'll only talk off the record and I'm usually completely willing to do that. And then at least you can give me some background and correct my misconceptions. And maybe I can say, okay, that one thing you just said, I would love to be able to quote you on that. Is that something you'd be willing to be quoted? on. And maybe that is something you'd be willing to quote it on, even if you're nervous about an unstructured 20-minute conversation. But also, I know a lot of people have just had bad experiences with, you know, talking to someone who seemed sympathetic, and then an article went up that they felt really misrepresented them and their perspective. So 
that's just how it goes. Understandable, yeah. Have you ever had anyone say, oh, I'm willing to talk to you, but only if I can record this whole conversation. So I have a record of exactly what I said. And so like, if you ever misrepresent me, then then I can like call that out. I haven't heard that one. If people want to do that, that's fine. If they want <laughs> access to my recording, that's also fine. I think an important part of good reporting is that everyone you talk to, even the ones who you end up concluding are not at all right about their perspective feels like their perspective was articulated correctly. And Vox does not try to do balance or neutrality in particular. And Vox tries to avoid both sidesism where you interview two people who disagree instead of trying to take a stance on who's right. But one thing that Ezra emphasized in like our initial trainings on this was actually steel manning, which is a rationalist community sort of framing for it. Make sure that your opponent's perspective is represented and that you understand your opponent's perspective and like can represent it in a strong way, represent a version of it that readers will find compelling. And then you can argue that it's wrong, but make sure that you found the most compelling and most accurate and one that's not weak and easy to poke holes in before you poke holes. I mean, yeah, so I, I would talk to you, Kelsey, but I think uh, in general, I'm, I'm very reluctant to talk to journalists because I've just found that by and large, uh, most or like many, many journalists are trying to like find the most provocative take or the, the most provocative presentation of what you've said in a way that, that, that isn't super faithful. And I guess I've tried to kind of, I've tried to do the exact opposite uh, with, with this podcast. So I, like, I allow guests to like look over the transcript of, of the interview and remove anything that they think wasn't like the absolute best portrayal of their views or if, if they think that they, they, they got something wrong or it wasn't put the right way. So I want to like, yeah, give people like just the optimal opportunity to present their views in as much length and as much sophistication as they like. But it's, it's very hard to do that in an article if, if you're really trying to turn a profit as a, as a like online media outlet. Yeah. And I also try for some conversations, particularly ones that are difficult or complicated to make sure at least that I run quotes by people and that they can say, nope, that's not representing what I meant, even if it's what I said. But yeah, I don't do that for every conversation more if it's a big or complicated topic where it feels important. And I can see why that's not something that everybody can do, nor is it necessarily something everybody should aspire to. You know, if you're talking to a prominent politician and they say something about their views, then even if they didn't endorse it, it may still be newsworthy and worth reporting. But I do think if your reporting strategy is mostly trying to get those gotchas instead of trying to talk about the views people endorse, then ultimately that's going to hold back a lot of really important conversations. Has Future Perfect made any, made any mistakes? Have there been any articles where you kind of regret publishing or you had to, had to make corrections to? I've had to make some corrections. It's terrifying. Um, I, think, I think one thing that this job has given me a deep appreciation of is how difficult it is to write something long and substantive and have everything in it be accurate like down to the smallest details. Um, the New Yorker apparently has an entire team that calls people up and asks like, is there a duck pond visible out of your window? Is there a red paperweight on your desk? Just to make sure that everything in the notes is completely accurate. Vox doesn't have those sort of resources. I fact check my own pieces. I catch errors in the fact-checking process sometimes. A couple times things have gone to press and still required checking. One time we made Jeff Bezos' social media press relations team very angry and they uh, went back and forth with our editorial team for like three days on corrections that they wanted to appease. Did you think it made it better? 
I think if I were writing that piece from scratch, I could have better represented Bezos, but I think they also wanted a bunch of corrections that were not about most accurately representing Bezos. So it was this odd mix of, yes, we can and should do a better job of representing your perspective here, but also some of this is not about more accurately representing your perspective here. And I think everybody should try writing up things they're very confident in, and then checking how many of them are true. I think the first time you do that and you realize how many of the things you had, like that you were just background very sure of were just wrong is like very powerful for sort of realizing how hard it is to reliably be accurate. And I haven't had to publish corrections yet on anything that I felt like was huge or changed the conclusions of the piece. But I think it's very hard to be a journalist for years and not do that, both because it's difficult for journalism to provide the resources to check all of that. And because even if you're very careful about checking all of that, the world is complicated. There's often a bunch of nuances out there that are just very hard to catch and that an audience of millions will quickly catch for you. I'll stick up a link to this uh, great article, from, uh, this, this quite funny article from The New Yorker where they, they got Daniel Radcliffe, the guy who played Harry Potter, to, to be on the fact-checking team for a day and he had to go through and like check every fact in an article. Uh, I think it's, it's actually kind of famous that these these American uh, kind of high, classy magazines, I think, probably have the most rigorous fact-checking of like any publication anywhere. It may, may, I think it may be stronger than like uh, published academic papers, to be honest. Oh, I, I think it is. Yeah. I, I, I think it is. I had a conversation with someone the other day who was like, but that's not substantive. Okay, they get the duck pond right, but they're as likely as anyone else to get the core questions wrong. But when I read the New Yorker's coverage of AI, I, I don't always agree with their take, but they do seem to have all of the right facts and like get them right in a way that I don't necessarily see in other coverage of AI. So I do think that that sort of level of rigor is related to rigor where it really matters. And I think being very rigorous is genuinely something to look for in coverage. I think people who say, you read the article, if it's about something you know, and it has some things wrong, then you should assume it gets that much wrong everywhere else. I think that's completely true. I mean, often I find journalism, uh, stories that journalists put out should be pretty exasperating, but it, but it, I think it can be a little bit too easy to attribute to like malice what, what's what's more easily explained by tight deadlines and the need to like publish a lot of stuff really quickly. And it's like almost all of us would make mistakes all the time in, in, in such an environment. I think that's true. I think, you know, it's, it's only partially an excuse because... I think it's reasonable for people to say, well, I'm only going to read outlets that don't put their journalists under a degree of time pressure that produces obvious mistakes. And I think that's probably the right call. Since in practice, lots of people will read outlets that don't do that. There's not much incentive for outlets. And often they find they can't keep afloat if they try and add those delays and add that process and add that expense. But I definitely think it would be a better world if it wasn't a competitive disadvantage to do that. And it was a baseline expectation and there were more resources to get stuff right. Yeah, I, I agree there's something like morally bad and like maybe even reprehensible going on here. But I, I guess what's it's at the systemic level. It's at the mm -hmm. business model level. It's at like the incentives that the readers create uh, level rather than uh, like uh, that, rather than usually at the level of the individual journalist uh, being being malicious or yeah, a bad person. I mean, definitely there are some like very irresponsible journalists who like who do harm through the, through the negligence or because they get they, the callousness. But I think that that's not the typical case. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think working in journalism has definitely given me more of an appreciation of journalism just how high the bar for rigor has to be in order to always get stuff right. And that doesn't mean it's not important to get there, but I think a lot of people imagine that that's easier or like more straightforwardly achievable on limited resources than, than it turns out to be. 
Yeah. Do, do you think so, so? At the moment, I guess uh, Future Perfect's being funded by the by the Rockefeller Foundation. Is it possible that in future there'll be like more pressure to to make money and get clicks, and there'll be like perhaps more pressure to produce articles and cut corners a bit more uh, within Future Perfect? Or are you hopeful that you can avoid that? So the grant is for a year, and then I think we'll revisit with the Rockefeller Foundation about whether Future Perfect is meeting their goals. I think you know even within the rest of Vox, it is very highly valued to sort of write good stories that people feel like teach them new things. I think Future Perfect has found a good balance where we are getting lots of page views while still writing content that we're proud of. And so I'm pretty optimistic that in the worst case scenario where there wasn't funding for Future Perfect, Vox would be able to keep the section going with the sort of articles that you're seeing on it right now, because they do get a lot of page views. It seems pretty clear that there is a hunger for that. And I think we're able to sort of fill that niche while still having high standards. I do think over time, most things are subject to incentives to get more page views, even if it's not explicitly, you know, tied to your job performance or anything like that, because you want people to read your stuff so that that tension is always going to be there. But I, I do feel like this is a pretty good environment for having good incentives to produce content. Yeah, I'm really interested to dive down in this uh, analytics issue. Do, do you spend a lot of time like looking at how many people are viewing your your, uh, your articles at, at any point in time? And I mean, I do this when I publish stuff. I'm like, very curious to, know, to look at the analytics on a site and see who's reading it like where are they coming from i do nodding your head <laughs> i should stop um i should <laughs> really addictive. check once a week or something it's it's important but getting it as moment to moment feedback is not any more valuable than than waiting until all the numbers are in but i absolutely we have a, a thing that shows the number of people on the page at the moment where they are on the page so you can see if they're actually reading the article all the way through where they came from what links they click on it's very compelling i think you know we're all in this because we want to tell people things and when it's out there and it's telling people things it's very hard not to not to check in on them and go all right who's that what are they learning yeah uh, how well do you think you can predict which articles are going to be of interest to people reasonably well i think some will always surprise you. I think there's a pool of articles about which I could make the prediction. This has a decent chance of going viral. And if it goes viral, then 100,000 people will see it. And then some of them do and some of them don't. And there's another pool of articles where I'm like, about 15 to 20,000 people will read this. And then that turns out to be accurate. Uh, global poverty stuff doesn't do very well. This is something that makes me very sad. Um, and it makes my mother very sad. She reads all my articles and she's like, the global poverty stuff is the best. You should do more of that. And it, I, I also would love to do more of that. I think it's a really important topic, but it doesn't get nearly as many views or as much attention as both the existential risk stuff and sort of the animal stuff and the weird big ideas sort of content. It's really interesting. I, I haven't had that experience. I found that the stuff that's hardest to get to take off uh, for us, I think, has been things to do with nuclear war and things to do with pandemics. I've just never really been able to find an angle on that. I, I've assumed that it's because people find it so depressing that whereas it seems like it's easier to come up with a story to do with global poverty or our animals where it's like more, more, more clear what the lesson is and what, what people ought to do. Huh. Yeah, we've had some success with nuclear war and pandemic stories. One of my colleagues wrote a story called Here's How a Nuclear War Will Kill You, um, which did amazingly well, tons and tons of views. So I think people can, if you catch them in the right mood, be, be down for some. <laughs> some doom and gloom. <laughs> So a good article gets 100,000 views or so, like within uh, the first week? That's a very good article. I'm very okay. happy about 100,000 views. And kind of the, the, the average is more like 20,000? 
I don't know the average. I think the median is like fifteen, twenty thousand. And have you have you had any stories bomb? I, I guess you, oh, you're, yeah. saying, you're saying these global poverty stories maybe they just don't take off. Some stories will just two thousand people will see them. In particular, write ups of global development studies will often do that. And you know, sometimes I'm okay with that. Sometimes this global development study merited a write up, and a couple thousand people will read it, and like that's fine. It still feels to me like content we should have on the site, but it is definitely on the margin when I'm thinking, do I write up this global development story or do I write up this big idea story? I think knowing what the readership does definitely pushes me in the direction of. Yeah. Are you able to come up with kind of theories for why it is that uh, some, some kinds of stories are successful and others aren't? Like what would be the reason why a global poverty stories are not of greater interest to people? I think... If they have an obvious, simple takeaway, that's one thing, but often it's more like this study points at a promising new intervention, we'll need significantly more research to be confident in it, but there's some other research that backs up its basic story about its effect and the effect sizes are like consistent with the only other research in the area. And like, that's very hard to make compelling. It's really important. It's how progress happens. It's going to potentially save a lot of lives or change a lot of lives. But I think reporting on research always runs into sort of the difficulty of conveying how much of an advance in our state of knowledge is this. And most good research is, you know, a nice steady incremental advance in our state of knowledge. It fits in with some existing things. It advances our understanding somewhat. When a study is a blockbuster that completely changes our understanding, then, then it's pretty often wrong. You know, I, I, I try not to cover something if reading it makes me go, what, really? Wow. Um, so I think I think maybe you could get more attention if you are covering those, but I think also then you would be wrong. I also have something of an aversion, and maybe this is irrational. Sometimes I get pitched stories that I think would do quite well, like, hey, we trained dogs to sniff kids and tell if they have malaria. And there's a bunch of cute pictures of dogs sniffing kids and telling if they have malaria. I'm like, that would probably do well. But I want Future Perfect to be more focused on the interventions that I expect are going to be a big part of the solution. I don't see dog sniffing for malaria as likely to be a big part of the solution. Maybe I'll be wrong. Maybe it turns out to be a very low cost way for clinics to test who has malaria and then I'll feel very silly for passing up the story. But where I'm coming from is if it doesn't seem like it could potentially be a big part of transforming the global health landscape, then I'm a little reluctant to use those hooks. And maybe I shouldn't be. Maybe if I want people to read about global poverty, I start with these cool hooks and then I tell them about malaria. Yeah. I'm still figuring out that balance. Yeah, there, there are uh, sniffer animals uh, for tuberculosis where I think it actually do- might seem like it is quite useful because it's not, not so easy to diagnose, especially in, in remote areas. I guess with malaria, it seems like uh, it's maybe easier just to treat like everyone or to, to, to use the bed net approach rather than like figuring out who has the condition. Um, yeah, certainly GiveWell's current top charities are treatment across the board or prevention. But maybe if they had enough dogs trained, that would actually be an improvement, you know? Yeah, I think the difference there is that the, the treatment for tuberculosis is I think like uh, involves like months of like taking lots of antibiotics. So, so you, you, yeah, it would be like just too much to give it to everyone. And also, I think most people don't have it in most places. So, yeah. Yeah, where if malaria baseline rates are high enough and the treatment less onerous, so it makes more sense to just do coverage across the board. Yeah, I'll stick up a link to the to the sniffer rat thing. I I found it like heartwarming and fascinating. So I guess I'm I'm part of the problem here. <laughs> no, I I think. It's sort of condescending to not tell people stories that they're going to find interesting and compelling, but I do struggle with how do I figure out, but is this important? 
Now, you're talking about how um, studies that are surprising and interesting are like more likely to be wrong. And I, I kind of have this theory. Yeah, I have this model that kind of society becomes like more reasonable when things that are uh, more likely to be true are more likely to be copied and promoted and repeated to other people. And like in as much as things that are more likely to be false are actually more likely to be repeated, we basically like collectively lose our minds. And there does seem to be this kind of uh, effect on social media that, that's been created where it may just actually be the case that like uh, that, that things that are less likely to be true, at least in, in like within many domains are more likely to be repeated and so in fact like in, we just become like less and less informed the more the more we read uh, at least like things that are selected through that filter and, and and i do wonder whether that's like one potentially like one of the biggest problems in the world yeah i do worry about how to make sure that true stories are you know a, a bigger part of that than false stories both because it, it undermines sort of people's trust and people's expectation that they can figure out the truth and people's belief that other people who've figured out the truth and published a good explanation are, you know, publishing something that they can evaluate for themselves and go, yep, this is true. I learned something about what I can do. It looks very hard to solve, particularly like in published research. You know, that's a community that has been trying to have these high standards for accuracy and that realized that their standards for accuracy just weren't working and is working very hard now to sort of figure out new ones. And I'm somewhat optimistic about that project. But in the meantime, yeah, when a study comes out, I can't be like, this has already been vetted. I kind of have to be like, well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it can't be quite as bad as, I'm, as, as I was suggesting there, because if, if it was actually the case that like that lies were more likely to be uh, repeated or less equal, then then the world would just be like a lot crazier. We wouldn't like even be able to like build houses or accomplish like basic goals of civilization. <laughs> so it's evidently we do like to have some processes for like re repeating good information in some areas. But I guess within like particular subsets of information, things can be like people can actually just like be getting more misinformed over time. Yep. And like anti-vax seems like a good example of that. Just a space that is complicated enough that the people who are wrong can come up with evidence as compelling to a lay person as the people who are right. And then you get widespread public health disasters. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess the it feels like kind of the... The, the 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 fight or the tension is that uh, perhaps people would all of sequel would like to promote what's true. They don't want to be they don't want to imagine themselves as being someone who promotes things that are false. So that that that's true. Truth has that going for it. Unfortunately, it has the downside that what's true is kind of quite limited to like what is actually true. There's like kind of only one thing that's true. Whereas uh, things that are false, there's like a much broader range of false claims that you could make. Uh, and so you can like choose from a much much wider range of claims that uh, some of which might be like extremely viral or very appealing to people to to repeat. And so yeah, you've got this kind of like constant tension between yeah the preference that people have for saying what's true and their, their capacity to kind of observe it and figure it out versus the fact that there's just like so many false claims that someone could make and uh, some of them are just like extremely viral by nature. Yep, I, that seems to me you see some examples of misinformation in the media where it seems like that's what happened. Like lots of people had boring true stories and then one person had a extremely compelling story that ends up looking like it wasn't true. And the extremely compelling story is the one that gets the coverage because of how outrageous and astounding it is. Do you ever think when you're writing, a, say, a, a more boring story about uh, an article, you know, some like some some global health, social science, think, well, I, I, probably only a few thousand people are going to read this, but like one of them may well be, you know, uh, someone at the World Bank and someone who like actually has access to to resources that they can, like decisions that they can make on this basis, and that like even even if just you know one person in that position reads this article, then that like justifies the whole thing, even if it was quite it, there wasn't much reach. 
I don't know that I've thought about that in particular, but I have thought that it's very important to me that the scientists who talk with me about their research feel like the article is a compelling and accurate presentation of what they learned. And that if that's true, and if over time Future Perfect is something where people doing important research expect that they can get their important research covered truthfully and compellingly, then that's something I would feel really good about, you know, regardless of the, the views. Have you learned, uh, I guess it's early days, but have you learned any useful lessons about how to, how to frame different issues in order to make them more, more interesting to people? I think I've gotten a little bit better at figuring out what kinds of stories the audience is going to find interesting and what kinds of hooks are going to get the audience into those stories, but it's honestly still a weak point of mine. My editor pretty frequently will be like, this is a great article that needs a completely different intro that answers these questions that the readers are going to have and is significantly more exciting. I think I have a tendency to start by answering the questions that Kelsey at the start of the day had from the perspective of Kelsey at the end of the day. And I have to remember that lots of people are, you know, not starting from that point and, and need me to back up a little bit and aren't automatically going to go, whoa, new development econ study, sign me up. You know, you got to make the case that this is important. Yeah. So uh, let's wind back a little bit and find out about what kind of prepared you to, to be able to do this job. Because I think it's, it's something that relatively few people would actually be capable of doing, producing producing so much writing uh, every, every week and uh, managing to make it largely, largely insightful and accurate. Um, yeah. So how did, how did you build the, build the skills necessary to work at Vox? Uh, so I've been blogging for a long time, um, which Dylan tells me is a pretty common background for people who, who end up in things like this. And I mostly write on Tumblr. And that's very different in topic. A lot of it is about personal topics, about disability, about feminism and LGBT politics. It's Tumblr. That's, um, <laughs> that's, that's its thing. Yeah. Um, but I think it did teach me sort of how to identify in an argument when there was a perspective that wasn't being aired, that it would be valuable to get out there and sort of how to quickly formulate your ideas in a way that people wanted to share and wanted to read. Um, so it's good practice very much so for that. Yeah. How long have you been been doing that? I think five years. And, and uh, was this just kind of a compulsion that you had to, to share your thoughts? Uh, so it was actually a project of Stanford Effective Altruism, which I ran in college. We were sort of talking about outreach and talking about ways of expressing EA ideas. And some of us came up with the idea of starting EA tumblers to sort of talk about that. And I think I found it a much more exciting platform than everybody else did. So I stuck with it longer, but I definitely am indebted to them for getting started in the first place. Um, and it has actually been a great outreach tool for EA. I think I talk about what draws me to EA and sort of what I think it's taught me. And for a lot of people, that's compelling and gets them to look up more and learn. But it sounds like the, the topics changed a bit from effective altruism to like other things that were more like the, 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 the classic topics on Tumblr. I think, yeah, maybe pretty early on, it just became obvious that like there, there wasn't a lot of value in like preaching to people on a topic that they weren't necessarily there for and that I had a lot of thoughts on the conversations people were already having. And then I think one thing you can do to sort of share any reasoning system, but it works particularly well for effective altruism, is just to apply it consistently in a principled way to problems that people care about. And then they'll see whether your tools look like useful tools. And if they do, then, you know, they'll be interested in learning more about that. And I think 
my ideal effective altruist movement, and obviously this trades off against lots of other things, and I don't know that we should be doing more of it on the margin, but my ideal effective altruist movement had insightful, nuanced, productive takes on lots and lots of other things so that people could be like, oh, I see how effective altruists have tools for like answering questions. And I want the people who have tools for answering questions to like teach me about those tools and like I want to know what they think the most important questions are and I want to sort of learn about their approach. Do you think you started uh, blogging because you were already a good writer or is it, is it more that you became a great writer because you're because uh, you were blogging for, for many years? I think I was already an unusually good writer. I think I was probably an unusually good writer when I was 10. Um, I, I, I feel very braggy saying this, but if people are trying to get a sense of, should I be a journalist? I don't know that putting in tons and tons of time writing will necessarily get you there if it's not something that you already think of as a strength. Although I do think you have to put in that time to get really good at it. And um, there's a lot of returns to additional practice, even for people who are already strong writers. Interesting. Okay. So, so people do get better through practice, but if they're not already decent to start with, then probably they shouldn't design a whole, or they shouldn't aim for a job where like that is the core skill. Yeah. I think it is, it is not like programming in that I know lots of people who had no background in programming and were like, oh, I think I should do programming and taught themselves it at a professional level. I think most people who are writing professionally had a innate aptitude for writing. So I guess I'm, I, yeah, I'm pretty enthusiastic about uh, blogging as a way of building career capital. And perhaps I'm biased because it's kind of what I did. I think <laughs> I, I wrote quite a lot of articles when I was at, uh, an undergraduate, and I think it like mm-hmm. made me made me a better communicator, and like also made it made it possible for people to see that I kind of knew what I was talking about, and like and, and could think through issues, you know, complicated issues, and uh, it was it's a way of proving yourself and like building an audience. Yeah, I think blogging is a great tool for all of that. I think it's somewhat meritocratic in that you can really start up on Tumblr with nobody following you because of who you are, and then develop a following by making good arguments and saying things that people find compelling and having interesting thoughts. And I think that sharing your thoughts in public is very good for improving them. I think people will point out nuances. People will point out when you're wrong. It, it makes you a lot more thoughtful. So I do think there's lots of reasons to write, you know, regardless of whether you're pursuing a career as a writer. Yeah, uh, putting putting ideas out there is a great way to realize that uh, even when you're like really confident about your idea, like the probability that someone is going to be able to come back with a really strong rebuttal is actually uh, surprisingly high. Yep, that's definitely something I get out of sharing things publicly. So, so you said uh, you, you didn't find it that hard to, to build up an audience there, even though I guess most people hadn't hadn't heard of you. Uh, h- how does that happen? Uh, on Tumblr, people reblog. On Twitter, they retweet, and you just sort of steadily accumulate followers. Is it, is it hard to stick with it to begin with when you know you've kind of got an audience of like four friends? I didn't find it particularly hard. I think some people like I can do that, but I think especially now if you start blogging in the EA community, there's lots of places where you can cross post. There's lots of places to sort of get reactions to your ideas. Don't maybe expect tons of reactions right away, but I think if if you're coming up with interesting ideas you should probably be able to get reactions early before you give up on because it seems like you're yelling into the void are there any uh kind of uh, upsides and downsides that people should be aware of uh, about, about blogging if they're if they're considering this might be like something they really want to invest time in i think lots of people are really interested when they get into the ea movement in which bullets they can bite and which like clever arguments they can come up with. I think if you're doing outreach, that's a pretty bad approach because I don't think 
that the EA community's like comparative advantage is our ability to bite bullets. I think it's uh, sort of our ability to answer important questions. So I think if you're doing anything outreach oriented, if you're doing it for the sake of like enhancing your own ability to explore ideas, I, I don't want to get in the in the way of people enhancing their ability to explore ideas. That's important to just be able to do without PR like thoughts. But if you're doing outreach, I think it's important to do outreach by demonstrating that you're good at thinking about important questions and that your answers to those questions are like valuable and carefully thought through and like give people a toolbox to think about those questions themselves. That's my big outreach advice. You didn't kind of um, face the incentive to be a bit more contrarian or a bit more like have a really striking message early on in order to, to, to build, build an audience from nothing. I think I, I kind of found that when I when I started writing online that of course like no one has any idea who you are. So, th- so there's a certain temptation to be more sensationalist than, than perhaps later on when you when you already have a, have an audience that, that's interested to read your articles. I think I was more contrarian when I got started. And now I'm thinking, was that on some level incentivized by trying to get more readers? What it felt like from the inside was that when I started, everybody on Tumblr was very frustrating and wrong, and I had to like explain why with all my clever arguments. And then over time, I got like a more nuanced perspective and a better understanding of what people's belief systems were doing for them, I guess. And now I don't find it nearly as tempting to be edgy in those ways. But it's totally possible that like part of the driver of that is wanting to make more of a splash when that's your way to get readers and then wanting to alienate fewer people when that's your way to get readers. Yeah. So uh, how did it fit in with the rest of your life? Was this uh, something, because it seemed like you uh, would blog a lot on Tumblr. You were like writing, you know, a thousand words or something on a, t- on a typical day. Uh, did that like take time away from, from everything else? I am a pretty fast writer, so less than you might think. But also I, w- I was practically failing out of college at the time. I was having a very bad time in college. I think to some extent I was definitely leaning on um, the, the place where I had interesting ideas that people valued instead of the place where I was really struggling to keep up. I guess it's interesting, like maybe you're actually building more useful skills <laughs> doing the blogging rather than like studying for courses. I, I think I definitely recommend to people that they, if they are unhappy in college and have other stuff they like doing, that they stop the college and do the things they actually like. But on the other hand, I'm very lucky in a lot of ways that made that work out for me. And yeah, it's trickier for people who really do need a degree to make any progress in the area they care about. Yeah, are there any other things that you've that you've done in the past other than other than blogging that you think uh, prepared you to for for the role that you're in now? I think running Stanford EA was also pretty valuable for that because it involved lots of digging into EA ideas with a group of people. We would have three hour meetings where we would sort of pick a topic and just try to have a much better understanding at the end than we had at the start. And I think that was a very valuable experience. I try and get other student groups to do this. And they're like three hours, nobody's willing to put in that time. And like, we got lucky that we started freshman year when we all had a lot of free time and it sort of was obvious that it was valuable by the time it was more established. But I think the ability to have a question and then just toss around a lot of ideas on it and make some progress pretty quickly is also something that's pretty valuable in journalism and just valuable in general. I think everybody in Stanford EA is doing cool stuff now and it seems like in general, the experience of tossing around ideas and coming to a better understanding and just believing that you can do that. I'm a big believer that if people have the correct expectation that if they think about a hard problem for a couple hours, they will walk away with a better understanding than they started. That's just very empowering and it makes you better at thinking about lots of things. And if you just have the expectation that if you look at something for a couple hours, you're going to be as lost and confused as before, 
then that's really discouraging and you don't end up looking into very much. And you, when you encounter an intriguing or counterintuitive argument, you're much more likely to be like, I don't know how to evaluate this. Like, it doesn't matter if this is right because I wouldn't be able to tell. Yeah, so, so you think people underestimate their ability to, to evaluate arguments? I think people underestimate it and I think they don't learn it. So they correctly estimate that it's not a strength of theirs, but they don't see how to improve on that. And I think that like, there's a lot of cultural sort of difficulty in, we, we don't have a lot of explanations of how to tell whether you, you can trust your own arguments. We don't have a lot of like tools for people. We have like calibration for the specific skill of estimating your own confidence in things. But I can't think of a good tool that I'd point someone to if they were like, I just want to get better at the practice of reading about something for two hours and then understanding it. And I wish we had those. All right, let's let's turn now to some kind of like uh, more more concrete advice for listeners who are thinking, you know, maybe I want to be a journalist or maybe I want to work at Vox or some other organization trying to do good by promoting important ideas and potentially doing, I guess, investigative journalism as well in the future. Who would you recommend going to journalism if, uh, if, if anyone? I think that to go into journalism, you need very strong writing skills. You need to be a fast writer. You need to be, I'm not a spectacularly organized person, but a big part of your job will be organizing phone calls and following up on leads and having phone conversations and transcribing those conversations. That needs to be something you're at least pretty good at. So ideally, you would also have a pretty deep understanding of the area you want to cover. I think that's something that can maybe set you apart from lots of journalism candidates if you're coming to journalism with a very strong background in um, something else that's what you want to cover. But obviously that can be hard for people, you know, just out of school who are thinking about what to do. And then I think journalism is a more social job than I realized. Like a lot of what you're doing is you're trying to get people to tell you about what they're doing in a way that helps you identify which the most interesting stories are and which stories people are going to want to read. And you're working very closely with your editor and with your team to allocate all the stories that need telling and make sure that your stories are in line with your missions and goals. So I think, I don't want to say you should be an extrovert because I'm not and I'm, I'm doing okay, but being able to think about people's stuff a lot and having pretty strong skills for interpersonal stuff and having good conversations with people is another thing that's really valuable. Yeah, so uh, you were working as a writer at Triple Byte before. Did you just like quickly describe what, what that was and whether it like kind of help, helped you on your way very much? Yeah, Triple Byte does technical interviews with software engineers and then places them at tech companies. My writing work there was very different. I was just writing up each interview and describing like what made the candidate uh, talented and what, what roles they were a good fit for. But it did involve writing lots and lots of content every day fast, which I think is very much a skill you need for journalism. Um, and by the end of my time there, I was managing a team, which I think also taught me some stuff about collaborating with other people on writing projects and like keeping standards high when you're doing something at a bit more scale. I think transitioning from industry like that might work well for a lot of people in that there are more writing jobs in industry and it can give you the chance to sort of hone your skills, write fast, save up enough money that you don't mind a journalism salary down the road. Yeah, so obviously, like journalism's very competitive, as we've been saying. Has that kind of driven down salaries a lot, such that it like might, might be hard to make ends meet as a journalist? I think um, journalism certainly pays less well than the tech industry, um, surprising no one. But uh, it's actually significantly better, at least at Vox, than I would necessarily have expected if he'd asked me to make a prediction in advance. So I make sixty-five thousand dollars a year, and that's with no previous experience. 
And, you know, obviously in the Bay Area, that's um, not as much as it sounds, but I work remotely. I could work from anywhere. If I didn't have friends out here, I bet I would be living quite comfortably somewhere with a little bit of a lower cost of living. So I think while obviously it's not a good career if earning a lot of money is a priority for you, that's not prohibitive and you don't have to like live in poverty all the time. Yeah, so, so you mentioned some of the like uh, strengths that people need to go into journalism. What are kind of some of the um, red flags that, that people might notice about themselves that are just like a really bad fit for, the, for that kind of industry? I think if a fast pace at work is something that's going to burn you out, you probably shouldn't do journalism. It can be pretty long hours. It can be pretty unpredictable hours as you're trying to get in a last phone call or something. My editor is pretty good about telling me, yeah, don't work on this on the weekend, but I still end up working on the weekends a fair bit just to make everything happen. If you get burned out in jobs that have that sort of long, unpredictable hours, then I think it's probably not a great fit. Just, just, just as a qualifier, do you have a sense of um, how typical uh, Vox is, or how typical your experience at Vox is of like, yeah, jobs in journalism in general? Like, sh- should we just think, oh, this is like a Kelsey's view, or do you think you have like a general visibility of? of- I don't think I have that much visibility about the industry as a whole. I think. Yeah, there are probably some jobs that look very different than this. Um, in particular, you know, if you're working for think tanks or something like that, you can get some of the benefits of doing journalism, but have a much slower expected pace and a lot more time for articles and maybe a bit more of a nine to five schedule. So yes, definitely take all of this as what it's like to work at Vox having transitioned from tech more than as, um, you know, every everything in the field. Although my sister is also um, working in journalism, so I have her sort of perspective on that too. We see a lot of potential to do to do good through journalism, but we've been a bit reluctant to um, recommend that people go into it uh, just for the obvious reason that it's kind of a shrinking industry, it seems. I think like the number of journalists has like halved or something in the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah, I was looking at some stats on the Federal Reserve that we can link to, and it's like, it's a pretty grim picture. Um, and I suppose it's... I mean, industry is always changing, but it seems like it's one that's like had a greater share of upheaval and like has a more uncertain future than than, than some others. So uh, people should go into it with with their eyes open. Yeah. Do you think like how, how competitive are these roles? Are there just like tons of people applying for each of these jobs, and like people people really shouldn't count on 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 getting into journalism, even if even if they really are quite a good fit for it. I think so. I think that especially if you don't have your own following from social media to sort of bring to the table or expertise in a highly valued area. I, I think it can be really hard to get these jobs and there is pretty fiercely competitive application process. I think I could conceivably see more EA-focused journalism roles opening up in the next 10 years that were yeah, some of this grant-funded or foundation-funded journalism with the intent to have an impact um, that might change that. But yeah, it's competitive. It's a shrinking industry. Most people with the skills to do well in it would get paid twice as much anywhere else. I like what I'm doing, but definitely make sure your listeners know that. <laughs> yeah, I guess what are kind of uh, nearby things that people can go into that are that are also good if they don't manage to get to get into journalism or media or the, yeah, the press somehow. If you write articles as a freelancer, you're not going to make a living off of that, but you can do the same thing of getting your ideas on major platforms. And I know more EAs who've been successful with that approach than with being a journalist. I think, yeah, there are lots of organizations that'll pay you to produce content. And some of that might, if if you approach it as a journalism role and approach it with the intent to write lots of articles um, and your organization is on board with that, then you can maybe get a lot of the same benefits with like a smaller, but not vastly smaller platform and a little more flexibility to make sure you're covering the things that you think are the most important. Yeah, do you have any opinions on kind of like uh, other high impact roles for people whose strengths are kind of in writing and, and writing quickly other other than maybe, yeah, being like a freelance writer or like things that are kind of journalism adjacent? Oh yeah, um, 
seems like lots of direct EA work jobs would benefit from strong writing and analytical skills and the ability to have these conversations. I think a lot of this would translate to, you know, evaluating grants for an organization that makes grants or to working directly at, you know, somebody working on global development or things like that. Yeah, I guess it's like not not, not completely dissimilar to the work the work that we do. <laughs> it's yeah. Like, and, uh, yeah, eighty thousand hours. I think has found it like uh, a little bit challenging to find people who both have uh, like really good analytical ability and like so technical ability, which is something that we need, and also like a good ability to write. Uh, someone someone who can combine those two things is um, can can potentially be a quite quite a scarce commodity. Although I, I guess I, I don't know I don't have a sense of like in the marketplace as a whole like how rare a good writing skills. It seems like there's a lot of people who you know graduate from the kinds of degrees that uh, give you good writing skills who, who don't seem to have like a, a main like job outcomes uh, relative to people doing technical work. So I'm, I'm a bit unsure on the picture here. Yeah, I think there are a lot of really good writers out there. I think to do good EA writing, you also need a pretty firm grounding in the EA community. So that's a little more limited. Um, but there are definitely more good writers than jobs for good writers. Okay, yeah, so one thing is that maybe the people who are getting the most training in writing are, are doing a kind of, that uh, they're writing about liberal arts topics like literature or something like that. And so like the thing that ends up being lacking is people who can write about like technical topics like, you know, economics or about like machine learning, like because the people who are learning about that aren't learning writing. So there's just like not a lot of overlap. Yeah, that seems like it could be some of it. Yeah, what, what kind of stuff do you, do you wish uh, Vox had the money to do? Do you think Future Perfect could be bigger if it like managed to find other foundations that could that could make grants? Or I guess even individual donors who might be able to like uh, you know, provide money to, to scale it up. Yeah, I would be pretty excited about that. I think if Future Perfect were bigger, we could maybe have some people who are able to specialize in a beat that's, um, you know, some specific EA cause areas, maybe have some more coverage of factory farming, have some more coverage of global health and development. Just, I think there are definitely a lot more stories to tell than we're able to get on top of every week. And I'd be excited about having the resources to tell more of them. It also seems like with a bigger team, um, you could maybe do more in-depth reporting on, for example, I always love to report on specific GiveWell interventions and things like that. And that's just hard right now to make work with all of our other priorities. But it seems to me like it'd be very valuable for just more reporting on this is a charity, this is what they do, sort of to be available to people who are interested in following those recommendations. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, like, would it be possible in principle for a listener to, you know, give uh, Vox like a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars, and say, oh, yeah, go away and like, or tr- try to find someone who can write a lot of articles about factory farming? I suspect that if a listener wanted to give Vox a hundred thousand dollars, like <laughs> Vox would figure yeah. out how to make this happen. Um, <laughs> okay, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean. I'm not, I'm not quite sure what I think about the cost effectiveness of that as a donation, but it seems like a, like uh, just get, if you look at the number of views per dollar that you would get from that, it, it, it could be potentially uh, potentially good, at least if you're providing advice that people can actually act on to, to, to make the world better. Yeah, I don't know if I'm allowed to share details of the Rockefeller grant, but doing some quick math in my head, I think you're certainly buying, you know, hundreds of views for a dollar um, of content that you want to exist by doing something like what the Rockefellers did. Yeah, did you know if like other other media outlets, other publications, also potentially take donations in order to to hire someone to to cover a, like kind of a non-profit like issue? I think if you're a big dollar donor, sort of willing to fund someone's salary for a year, I would expect lots of outlets to have some interest in that. I think you want to be careful about not exerting too much editorial control. Like, hey, I want you to be able to cover factory farming as a beat seems fine, but hey, I want you to report on how factory farming is evil and bad, you know, then you're asking for sort of sponsored content, maybe without clarity to the readers about what 
what is getting paid for. Um, so you'd want it to be something where you want the beat to exist rather than you want a particular angle on coverage. I don't know as much about other outlets, but I get the sense that many outlets are interested right now in alternative rent revenue models. And it seems to me like something that somebody who's interested should certainly reach out and we could talk about what, what that might look like. Are there issues around disclosure? Whereas, guess like, uh, of course, it, it's interesting. I suppose most people most people think that well, journalism is funded through advertising, which is not without creating its own pressures for like what what things get covered and what things get said and what things don't get said. Um, but I suppose, in as much as the money is coming from a foundation or, or an individual who I suppose has an agenda, even if the agenda is improving the world, then I guess maybe you want to declare that on every article that you know this was funded by you know uh, Robert Wiblin, who uh, gave money because he cares about this issue, and uh, and you like that's not necessarily bad, but you should know who this person is. Yeah, and that's what Future Perfect has on every article funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. And then if we mention foundations in the article, I'll tend to also try and say, in fact, we're funded by a foundation. They, they're paying the salary. And I think that's tough because a lot of people assume there is significantly more editorial control than there is. Um, but obviously, transparency and disclosure is just absolutely necessary if you want people to have a clear sense of where you're coming from and trust that you know you're telling the stories you're telling for the reasons you've represented to them yeah it's interesting I, I guess i haven't spent a lot of time thinking about this but i don't know that i would be more worried about the agenda of like the rockefeller foundation as any other group it's like every everyone has an agenda and like advertisers have their agenda and i guess uh so you always want to be aware of it but it doesn't give me any particular reason to, to dis just distrust it the mere fact that it was like funded by someone who like cares about the topic i think the comparison to advertising is sort of instructive there i hadn't thought of that but yeah if, if your alternatives are this is funded by a incentive system that rewards as many people reading and sharing this as possible versus this was funded by a foundation that made a grant at the beginning of the year for a full year of coverage that would make the world better yeah i, I actually feel better about the latter when you first it that way but right i mean there's, there's, there was this classic uh criticism of kind of media oligopolies that because they're reliant on advertising from particular um like large companies that are selling consumer goods that they would like tend to hold back on criticizing those groups for fear that they would punish them by not advertising with that particular outlet and i, I mean i'm not sure whether that happened a lot but i, but I expect it does it, it makes a whole lot of sense and that doesn't seem like uh, particularly better than, yeah, like a, perhaps you holding back on criticizing the Rockefeller Foundation. It yeah, seems exactly. like you'd have less reason to do that than, like, than to criticize businesses. Yeah. So you've written uh, lots of things on, on the unit of uh, caring, your, your, your blog over the years. I noticed um, one thing that is kind of related to EA, though it's not, not directly about EA, is kind of dealing with mental health issues or like dealing with, with challenges in, in your life. And I think probably hundreds of people, it seems, have written into you with like questions about like, you know, I'm, I'm like struggling about with, with this or that problem in my life. Like, how do you think I should deal with it? And you, you answer like, I think, uh, with a lot of wisdom uh, and like, people, people really respect your opinions on this uh, for that reason. Are there any kind of like uh, yeah, general lessons you think you can take away or share from from like, yeah, just dealing like people dealing with like very difficult circumstances in their in, in in their life for so long. Yeah, I think one thing I get out of that is seeing all of the ways that people can sort of be hurting and all of the ways that the narratives and advice available to them can fail to sort of resonate. And that's just made me more aware of like how many ways you need to communicate something to successfully get it across. But things that seem to often be important to communicate are that, you know, results oriented thinking that what matters is to figuring out how to get outcomes you want and not to beat yourself up over um, whether you're having the right thoughts or the right feelings or whether you care for the right reasons or whether your justifications are valid. Trusting yourself more, feeling like in a situation where you can't believe your own 
thinking and your own reasoning processes and your own senses. Those are just very destructive situations for people. And it's important to prioritize feeling like your opinions matter and feeling like you have the ability to reason about reality. And then just that everybody's going through a lot. Like I find work hard sometimes because there are days when I actually just can't get out of bed and find it very hard to do anything at all. And that's probably a little bit unusual, but the impression I've gotten through talking to enough people is that almost everybody has stuff that amount of difficult that they're dealing with. And if you're imagining I'm the one person who deals with stuff like that, then of course you're gonna kind of despair of having a successful, healthy, fulfilling life. But if you know that everybody else is also dealing with stuff, then it can be easier to be like, okay, but some of them do have lives that I could like aspire to and that I could have. And I think it's good for people to be aware that, yeah, there's lots of really great lives out there that, that don't involve fixing everything, but just figuring out how to work around what you've got. My guest today has been Kelsey Piper. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Kelsey. Thank you so much. Welcome to the What Did Rob Do Wrong on this week's episode of the podcast <laughs> podcast. I'm Kieran Harris, joined by Michelle Hutchinson and Rob Wiblin himself. Just like to say how excited I am to be on the Floors of Rob Wiblin podcast. Oh, we're so happy to have you, as always. <laughs> we're going to be stretched for material today, guys. <laughs> okay, so my number one point uh, this week uh, dealt with the section that I wrote about political polarization. So basically, uh, my principal objection is that we didn't actually discuss the importance of preventing political polarization of long-termist causes. Uh, we mostly discussed animal welfare and global health. I've got a few Rob okay. Wibble quotes here <laughs> okay. to back up on. Go so, for it, um, Kieran. So Rob said, uh, it feels like, so quote, hmm. it feels like global catastrophic risks just really aren't that partisan at the moment, or at least in principle, I don't think there are Republicans who are in favor of a nuclear war. That's one quote. <laughs> Very uh, generous. I like to steal man the other side. And, uh, and another is, uh, I guess I would think it was quite foolish if someone was trying to portray global catastrophic risk as left or a liberal issue, but I guess I haven't seen that. So my response is, yes, there are no Republicans who are openly hoping for a nuclear war, but that there are subdivisions of the issue that are partisan, where obviously they shouldn't be. So, okay. um, for example, there appears to be a political divide on the question of reducing nuclear stockpiles or eliminating land-based missiles, things like that. So um, I found a 2013 YouGov poll uh, that said that on the question of whether the U.S. should unilaterally reduce the number of nuclear weapons... Uh, support is 55% among Democrats versus 18% for Republicans. But presumably this is just an empirical question. You know, would reducing stockpiles actually make us safer or would it not? You know, would reducing from the U.S. has at the moment, what is it, about 5,000? I mean, if we reduce that down to something in the hundreds, uh, the consensus seems to be that we would lose very little in the terms of Deterrent. deterrence. Uh, and yet there is this political divide. So when I talk about my concerns about other long-termist issues facing the same fate, uh, I'm thinking along these lines that they wouldn't be rational. So you and Kelsey often just agreed, saying like, well, this would be completely irrational for mm. people to disagree on this. But we see it anyway. And we see a similar thing with climate change, which is how I kind of structured my uh, version of these questions. The idea that we can look at someone's position on climate change and then in the US reliably predict their opinions on abortion or gun control, that seems completely insane. But that that's where we are. And so I'm concerned that, you know, decades from now we can make a similar 
prediction based on their opinions around artificial intelligence safety, which to me would be a, a mm. kind of a disaster. I mean, another another example is I think Trump helped to shut down, or maybe it was a Republicans in Congress that helped to shut down the global health security agenda, which we mm. spoke about on the episode with Tom Inglesby about how valuable that is. I think mostly because they view that as kind of a foreign aid thing. It's like something that yep. benefits poor countries rather than something that benefits America, uh, when I guess uh, in our view it would do both. So do we all agree that it would be like it's bad for these uh, for things like nuclear policy to be to become partisan issues when it doesn't seem like they like divide across yeah so I but think you think you think it's likely that they will no I think uh, it's I think it's likely that that would be bad mm. and that we ought to explore whether or not that's actually likely and yeah. look at these previous examples of nuclear stockpile mm. reduction climate change and and try and investigate what actually happened there how did they become partisan issues where it's not obvious that they ever should have become mm. partisan and uh, how we can try and avoid that for questions moving forward. I mean, at the moment, people don't seem that passionate about it on political lines. So we're making some progress on, say, lethal autonomous weapons. There isn't this coalition of people on either side that are arguing against it. You know, people who actually do really care about this can make progress. But assuming that this couldn't happen, uh, I think is a mistake because you can imagine a story being spun similarly to let's say cold war thinking of okay we need to stay ahead in the arms race we need to maintain secrecy around our technology that would be terrible for global coordination for ai uh, i can imagine this happening it hasn't happened yet so you and kelsey rightfully say i haven't really seen this but that doesn't mean it can't happen I wonder how robust we should expect that to be, even if it caused a partisan surge, given that, as pointed out in the podcast, these kinds of issues seem much less partisan in the UK. You might expect that this would be a temporary thing that would uh, last as long as Trump's presidency, but maybe not much longer. Yeah, I'm, I wonder, though, because once you have this perception, particularly in the US, it seems to stick. So the you know anti-war protests in 50s and 60s people who were very against nuclear weapons seem to have a you know a strong liberal bias and then today i think it still has that left-leaning association uh, and we have the same thing for as rob and kelsey talked about in the podcast for animal welfare in the states not necessarily in other countries but if it was just a, a one president or a one administration issue wouldn't we have seen uh, people returning to the middle on these issues in the United States as well. Yeah, it seems like when these issues come up, uh, people just try to, like, they try to find the nearest thing that's a partisan issue and then try to map it onto that. Mm. So with the global health security agenda, you've got, oh, this is like, I don't like foreign aid, so I don't like this thing, which like involves sending money to Africa. Uh, with climate change, you've got like pro versus anti-capitalism or like pro versus anti-fossil fuels. Uh, with nuclear stuff, I guess people map it onto like, are you strong on like defense or not strong on defense? Um, and I guess, uh, for example, uh, with the Ebola, the Ebola issue a couple of years ago, I think the Republicans were more in favor of like closing off the borders to people people from Africa. Now, as it as it happened, or like some some parts of Africa, I think as it happened, that was a pretty stupid policy, but it could have been a sensible policy. And I think in that case, Democrats probably would have rejected it on like internationalist, like globalist grounds, like yeah. even even if it would have made sense. So there's this instinctive desire to kind of map it on map it onto some like existing dispute. Uh, so perhaps that's uh, that's yeah, um, kind of kind of the point that you're making. I think the fact that it does seem this uh, slightly arbitrary mapping makes me feel a bit better about the possibility of it being something that you'd be able to swing back if you were trying because it makes it feel a bit more like a reason this might not have happened with factory farming is that it just wasn't that important 
important to that many people, apart from uh, people who are actually raising chickens and trying to make that their livelihood. And so you wouldn't necessarily expect an organic swing backwards, but you might expect that if there was a concerted effort to make a particular issue something that people cared about on both sides of the aisle, using the kinds of uh, things that they already cared about, that might be viable. I suppose uh, most people assume that it's like very bad for effective altruism to to be seen as like uh, having any any political lean. Uh, I think that may be unrealistic, and I think that there are some benefits that people don't don't really uh, talk about that that much that you could get. Where, uh, well, if if you do like get involved with one political party, then you can potentially have like a lot more influence over that party than you would just as an outsider who's like trying to stay stay apart from the whole the whole political scene. Um, so it could be that even though there's significant downsides to uh, picking sides, uh, it's like very hard to get things done without doing that to some to some degree. Yeah, I wonder whether there are ways of uh, getting the best of both worlds by having different parts of this linked with different sides so that the overall worrying about existential risks ends up being not polarized because uh, different issues within that are polarized in different ways. So you might think that nuclear disarmament is a left kind of issue and then you were saying that uh, uh, biosecurity could even be seen as a as a issue on the right because uh, conservatives will be more willing to act as national groups rather than internationally. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I would be excited to see long-termist causes being treated like foreign policy is in newspapers. So, rather than at the moment, if people want to read about AI safety, if the only place they can go is Fox, which I think one reasonable critique might be of this episode is that Rob framed Vox as being center-left. I think if you looked at analysis of media outlets, you would put uh, you would put the Washington Post center-left, you would put the Atlantic at center-left. I think Vox is beyond that. Uh, and so if they are the only outlet who are talking about these issues, then it would be reasonable to be concerned about a perception of, you know, a, a liberal bias there. I guess as Kelsey said, it's probably easier to persuade people who have like uh, other political views to go and be outspoken advocates for these issues than it is to convince like everyone who happens to have uh, who, who be, to be liberal or progressive to just like stop talking about animal welfare or stop talking about existential risks. It's like it's a lot to ask for someone to, to, to gag themselves like that just because they happen to have the most common politics that's associated with that with that view. I guess I think like having a first kind of conservative uh, outspoken person talking about existential risk could be like, like really quite valuable. So if someone had that as an option, I'd be surprised if it wasn't like among among the, the top handful of things that they could do. Yeah, I think this discussion has been fairly US-centric so far in terms of uh, describing where various news outlets seem to be on the US political spectrum. There's a pretty exciting new project that's recently started in the BBC called BBC Future, which seems to be trying to do a somewhat similar kind of thing to Future Perfect. And the BBC doing it from a UK perspective seems really good because the BBC is seen as pretty neutral by both conservatives and Labour in the UK. On the other hand, I think Americans would typically see the BBC as pretty left-leaning, so it's not clear how this would uh, stand for Americans. Do we think that potentially uh, it's justified to have a, a quite a US-centric view on this, given the outsized influence that the US government might have moving forward in terms of regulating AI? Yeah, I guess, I mean, the US is going to be the, the dominant player, probably, or China, which I guess is a little bit outside our, outside our area. Um, I suppose, I mean, the UK could have an influence, so like DeepMind is, is based there. I think the UK has 
at least in the past, had some influence over the EU. I guess we'll see uh, where that ends up going forward. Uh, but I guess if you could convince bureaucrats in the UK, uh, they, they might be able to pass the message onto the US. There's like at least at least some potential influence there, and likewise in Australia, but perhaps a bit tenuous. I guess we've ended up talking about the US mostly because Vox is a, is a US-based uh, organization that I guess has most of its audience here and covers American politics a, a great deal. Perhaps also it seems like there's, there's a greater risk of effective altruism being viewed as like on one side uh, here because it, like in, in other countries, I think there are people who are involved in ex-risk work who like cross the, you know, exist across the political spectrum more, more than you get in the, in the US at the moment. I'd be interested in chatting a bit about what we think the implications of uh, some of the things you guys discussed should be for EAs, specifically in their career decisions. One thing that I was thinking about listening to it was I had previously thought that being a journalist was the kind of thing that you probably want to go into early in your career and you want to be a kind of generalist in terms of what different things that you write about. Um, But Kelsey mentioned the possibility of having a specialist, say, on AI. And that seems to be a thing that we haven't talked that much about, the idea that people partly into their career having done a PhD and maybe worked in policy for a while might then want to go into journalism and work somewhere like Vox in a very specialist area producing really high quality um, information on that area. What do you guys think is that a promising pathway? This seems like it would tie into the project of creating plausible platforms for this work. So Kelsey talked about uh, you wouldn't want to just create an AI vertical anywhere. You'd want to have the right people there. Presumably, if we had people who were experts in a particular domain, uh, they wouldn't necessarily want to make a career change unless there was a place for them to work. So um, potentially, we would want to have people setting up these verticals at respected institutions first and actually create these jobs, and then we could look to move people into them. But I wonder how plausible it would be for someone today to make that shift or commit to making that shift knowing that the only actual uh, place that's doing this is Vox and Future Perfect. I guess the kind of thing I was thinking of was mostly people keeping in mind that this could be the kind of thing that they Mm. would want to do. um, And that would affect their immediate actions in terms of maybe they would choose to uh, do more writing. Maybe they would choose to have their own blog, um, maybe in the style of Owen Barter or something like that, but in different areas. Um, But it wouldn't be as serious as actually looking for jobs immediately and that way perhaps it could be a more organic thing where they would at some point discuss this as a possibility and so the vertical would be set up with a particular person in mind who people already knew was interested in this. Yeah, it seems like uh, kind of no matter what expertise you develop, this is a potential option later in your career is to go into advocacy more generally, like making making use of all the things that you've learned. I guess it also reduces some of the downsides of going into journalism that if you actually know a subject really well, then probably you're, you're going to be better than the other things that people could, could be reading about that, which is like much less obvious if you just like leave college and then just start writing as a journalist. Like it's not entirely obvious that you'll be better than what people would have been reading otherwise or would, would be accurate enough to like brand effective altruism well. Yeah, do we feel comfortable advocating strongly that people start their own blogs presumably that will take away from time that they could have been spending on high impact things in the short term i think the thing i feel happier advocating is people having a go blogging where that might mean writing something up for the effective altruism forum i would expect that writing up a few posts in a few days would be pretty useful for someone as an idea of do i enjoy writing somewhat fast do i enjoy getting clearer on my ideas and that kind of thing and that it would be a relatively useful exercise for most people because it would uh, get them to think more clearly 
about some particular issue that they'd kind of wanted to be thinking about. Whereas I would be much more hesitant to suggest they actually set up their own blog, as you say, because that would be such a time commitment. Yeah, Michelle, was there, was there any other reactions you had to the episode? One thing I was thinking as I was uh, listening was whether we should be excited about the idea of a news aggregator that was set up deliberately as a charitable project, which was aiming to make someone as well-informed as possible in terms of uh, the big picture of the world. I don't tend to read much news at all because I find it easy to be sucked into things that actually aren't that relevant or which aren't very action-guiding for me. And I'm very grateful to a lot of people in the Yay movement, particularly Rob, for coming up with specific ideas of things that I can do in cases where, uh, for example, like uh, going door to door, asking people to vote in the Brexit vote. And I think I would find it pretty useful to have a news aggregator, which wasn't incentivized just for clicks or for anything like that, but was specifically targeted to get people to have a good understanding both of the world at a high level and of which things we should act on now and wasn't just trying to get you informed on things that were particularly inflammatory. That sounds like a really exciting project to me. Uh, Do you have a kind of person in mind who would be a good fit for that? Someone who you would be maybe coaching at the moment who you would if we were had that project set up you would say maybe you should consider this I expect it would need to be someone who themselves enjoyed reading a huge amount and uh, reading things on uh, lots of different news sites but also someone who was quite good at shifting reference frames because I think a lot of this would be trying to abstract away from the way typical media outlets present things and think about what's the thing here that people actually need to know, if anything, and how should I present it so that they don't get sucked into this disease is really bad, but maybe, oh, well, actually, if you look over a 20-year time horizon, this disease is really dwindling. And so the, the story really here is this particular vaccine has been surprisingly successful. That kind of frame changing that's a bit difficult to do. Uh, people have joked uh, at various points over the years about creating a utilitarian like news site where I guess you would like try to measure like the badness of all of the problems that you're describing <laughs> in terms of like their, their actual effect on on, on welfare. Um, I think that could be like quite an interesting experiment. Though. I'm not sure not sure whether it would get enough readership to, to continue. Uh, but I think I would I would find that like very amusing to read. Do we feel like the episode gave us enough information to update our position on how strongly we should recommend journalism as a career? I think it gave me more of a sense of the day-to-day of journalism. I thought she did a really good job of that. And as she said, her sister's also a journalist, so I think she may have been being relatively modest about how uh, representative the types of things she said were, because I would guess that at least she had some sense of when her particular experience was not generalizable and was kind of keeping that in mind. I still feel like I don't have a super strong sense of how valuable journalism is in general and in particular how much it varies depending on whether you're on a kind of typical beat and uh, waiting for the one or two useful stories to come up versus working at Future Perfect or BBC Future. Yeah, I guess uh, Kelsey's job seemed more appealing than uh, like what I imagine most journalism jobs would be. Perhaps she's like she has a particularly accommodating team and a, a, like a lot more editorial freedom than perhaps uh, most journalists would have. And I suppose in as much as there's like more positions like that open up that are funded um, through donations, it seems like it could be a better better career path than, than what I guess before. 
I guess it's really going to depend on like the specifics of someone's situation and like what role they're going into. Like I'd be very happy for the reasons we discussed earlier to see some conservatives writing about X risk, you know, the Wall Street Journal or something like that. I think that would fill a real niche where that, that audience isn't really getting that, that 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 content. But I don't. Yeah, it just depends on whether that's uh, whether that's actually an option an option that exists. I think also someone who prepares themselves to be able to do uh, what Kelsey's doing to like write quality articles about like important issues quickly is going to have a lot of other options even if they if, if they can't get into journalism there's going to be a lot of like movement building or like research roles i think that that would be in a, in a good position to to take yeah i really enjoyed this episode and listening to uh kelsey talk about how she thought about these things i was incredibly impressed by how fast she uh has output and learned about these issues and how deeply she thinks about them despite the fact that she has to produce five articles a week and i uh, was really glad to get this insight into her job fantastic well thanks for joining me on the what did rob do wrong this week podcast (laughs) it was my absolute pleasure kieran (laughs) always love to have people talking about me Just a reminder that applications to come to Effective Altruism Global in San Francisco are now open at eaglobal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to send it on to a friend. The 80,000 Hours Podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Thanks for joining. Talk to you in a week or two.